<laughs> Dude, my brother made fun of me for that. I was talking like a little bit about, I don't know, one of the narratives we talk about. And he's like, hey, I like that red hat you're wearing. Like, obviously, I'm on the phone. I'm like, dude, don't even. Anyways, um, I don't know what to do. This is the Big Brother podcast. So I asked Aaron what he does. And so he told Carl and I just to bant, banter and talk with you guys as much or as little as we want to. So I haven't been drinking, though. I'm on a cut. Did, you, did I tell you that, Carl? Yeah, you did. Yeah, the COVID weight. It's coming off pretty quick and easy, which is nice. Turns yeah, out I'm if you haven't worked out. Thing. Yeah, if you haven't worked out in seven months, even like normal workouts are just like Superman workouts, which is awesome. Hey buddy. All right. Uh um fuck, what do we talk about? What do you guys what do you guys want to hear? That's a good yeah, question. But like here is how grateful Clary is. Like the fucker is in my mentions like one minute over time. Like, why the fuck aren't you guys live? <laughs> Son of a bitch. I mean, did he send you an employee contract with a salary specified in it or what? I have no idea. He just said, you want to sub the channel? And I was like, I don't know what that means. I don't know your, I don't know your Gen X lingo. And he says, no, just to be on it. Well, like subbing this channel, doesn't that mean like you're face down and he's pounding you? I I don't know where to, I I don't know where to go with this one. (laughs) It's too homoerotic for four in the afternoon. (laughs) Um. Well, I like that we have this one because I'm tired of talking about Red Pill. Like, I like doing an unscripted stuff, but talking with you, I think I finally understand what you did with that essay you wrote. I think it's the, is it the second newest one or the newest one on your blog? Well, the one that was written in rhyme or the other one? The Yeah, the other one. The one where you're done with the Red Pill, how you need to get past and just like. Oh, yeah, yeah like life after the Red Pill, yeah. That was yeah, actually yeah. the one I wrote in rhyme. Oh, was that rhyme? Okay, my mistake then. Fuck, I read the thing. Yeah, that, that, I can't remember well, it. Well. Well, you know, the whole thing with that was just, like, I'm kind of, like, if I have to sit through another, like, three hours of looks money game, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> like, I'm not even joking. I'm talking full Kurt Cobain, like, uh, shotgun dental work, man. No, I agree. Well, it's it's the problem with, like, there's two groups of people. There's the marketing types that are here to build a brand and do whatever, and we're obviously part of that ecosystem. And then there's the part of the guys that are just in like random subreddits and blogs that are getting shit done. They aren't, they aren't in it for clout because nobody gives a shit about the subreddit on Reddit. Like who treats that as like real, real clout. And the two groups are having totally different things going on right now. The Reddit group I think is doing fine. Like they're solving things out. It's they've hit that point of regression to the mean, you know, the one like it was always super smart, very interested guys, super motivated built a lot of stuff and now we're at the point where it's about 100 level iq and a lot of guys need to have like a like for example uh why more please just put out a new post it's like uh own your shit for retards <laughs> <laughs> basically explaining the same thing like you were saying about the sphere which is like you know the same listicles everybody is just taking a cookie cutter you know own your shit post going through the motions and a year later they haven't made any progress but as long as they're in the place where the work gets done, it's fine. It's like, you guys aren't thinking. And then he called five Duke people of, out for being retards. You kind of like this, though. Like, uh, when I'm on your channel, you're like, don't get me demonetized yet. And you're on Clary's channel, and you drop two retards within, like, the first three minutes of being live. Yeah, well, he, I, he's not getting my labor. I'm not a communist. <laughs> 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 but it's nice. I know what it's like, what it feels like to be you now, where you're like, hey, this isn't my channel, hey, guys, cunt, cunt, cunt. Yeah, it's not that bad. Like, I don't call cunts cunts that fucking often. I mean, 
I'm not oh, I would screaming. never call a cunt a cunt. I only call non-cunts cunts because they're the ones that get mad about it. Yeah, I guess that's a fair point, but uh, you don't call someone a cunt to be mean. You do that to buy time before you can come up with an actual quip. <laughs> well, I do that, but that's because I'm not I'm not the smartest one in the room right now. I think that's I think you get the credit. I mean, you know who the I hell Schopenhauer Claire. is. I've still never read him. To be honest, I think Clary gets the credit for this because he got us doing a podcast for him for free. That is true. What is he do? Hey guys, what is he doing right now? He never did say why we're here. I just thought I like oh. Aaron and why not do it in his book. Uh, uh, Enjoy the decline. I actually liked it. Read that the same time as I read Terrence Pops one, the Warrior Soul. I've never read Pops one. I read like uh, Curse of the High IQ. I've read the um, you know, Bachelor Pad Economics one. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, the Enjoy the Decline one. I think I read that, but uh, I may not have. It wasn't bad. It's, I mean, it's exactly what you think it is. Not as hopeful as you'd think, but I mean, whatever. You don't need hopeful. You just need stuff that works. Yeah, like from what I heard, uh, last time last time I saw Clary just bought a red hat and it was going south, so I have no idea what's up with him. <laughs> oh, do we even want to touch? Actually, you know what? Let's not, let's touch the topic. I know we don't talk politics, but I do want to talk about the fans of politics because I, I don't like those guys. Well, the thing is, I had the same kind of like visceral reaction with Bitcoin earlier. Oh, and it's yeah. not because I don't like Bitcoin. It's I just because like I you. <laughs> no, I I just don't like the guys who get in every thread. It's like some guy. So you'll be asking like, I'm looking for someone somewhere to go to lunch. What should I? Where should I go? And it's like always one dude and another. Buy Bitcoin. It's like I can't fucking eat Bitcoin. <laughs> I love those. You see, that lots of everything, though. Just the Bitcoin guys, the MAGA guys, and I think the uh, Christian guys and libertarians, for some reason, they just have, like, an, uh, a focused fixation. But there's always, like, you've been on Twitter long enough, you see it where you'll say something, a fairly clear point, and then some guy underneath has his pet project he has to dick ride on your tweet with, and you're like, this makes no sense. Yeah, I know what you're getting at, because, like, I have evangelical relatives. Mm-hmm. And they have a way of sneaking Jesus into everything. It's like you could be sitting there having a conversation about bondage. And you, you know what the original guy who invented bondage was? Jesus. He was put on the cross. <laughs> These fucking guys, man. Oh. Like, like, I kind of love that because I've done a lot of improv in my day. Yeah. But... The ability to somehow manage to shoehorn and segue into the topic you want to talk about from any fucking point you were at. I know, it's very selfish. That, very that, that's, a, that's a good skill to have, man. I mean, those guys would kill it in-game with that reframing ability. Oh, the, yeah, but that's the thing. That's the only thing guys don't do is turn things sexual like that. If we could turn that autism around to like make everything about sex, I'd be out of work in like three months. Yeah, but it's like I'm kind of sitting here thinking, like, I've heard some, what's the most, like, insane, like, you know, the obvious ones, like, oh, yeah, I'm looking to remodel my kitchen. Hey, you know who another carpenter was? That was Jesus. That's an easy one. <laughs> it's usually, my mom used to do the one, she's like one of those ones that sing the praises to Jesus while she's doing the dishes type, and it's always anything that goes bad, it's always like, oh, that's right, he'll provide, and she does it in song, and, like, anything that goes wrong, Jesus has a plan. Anything that goes right. Oh, he's just so wonderful, isn't he? And I'm like, dude, he wasn't invited to this party. 
Yeah, it's like that was one of the, like the most insulting things ever to me when I did finish one of my master's degrees in half the time because I studied my ass off. Uh-huh. And I told one of my relatives, yeah, yeah, just uh, finished my degree, man. And they're like, oh, praise Jesus. And like, Jesus wasn't studying at four o'clock in the morning doing Ritalin. <laughs> See, now you're Jesus pissing off was... cynic and chief here, man. The like, Christian like, libertarian Jesus wasn't mega. standing. Like, Jesus wasn't standing next to me, whispering, like, okay, it's option B. <laughs> That'd have been nice of him, though. We're up to that Old Testament God that would, like, slay towns and. You know, you give your daughter to the invading horde, so they save everybody else, but he turns people into you know, rice wine or whatever he did. I'm really bad at Bible stories here. But you know what I mean? That one was a much more active God. This one's just kind of like hanging around and telling you to vote Republican, apparently. Yeah, but I do kind of love it, though. Like, uh, we all remember that heartfelt story when all the lepers walked up to Jesus and it was like, Lord, please heal us. And it was like, I can't heal you for free. That's socialism. <laughs> Man, America... <sighs> I don't like American politics, but from what I understand, that's like part of the Canadian identity is there's always people that think they're the 51st continental state and people that hate that. So apparently the big part of being Canadian is anything not American in parentheses. So maybe that's why I don't like it. Well, I actually love American politics. To entertain, but not. Like, I don't yeah, like when I see people outside my building protesting Trump in 2016. I'm like, why are you here? What do you want me to do about it? That's a good one. But I heard that Ontario stepped in to end that whole voter fraud shit. And we're like, okay, we're voting for Biden. We're the 51st state. He gets 50 electoral votes off us. You joke. I've heard my girls Zoom meetings with coworkers, and they're talking about their team Biden. And I'm like, you live in Quebec. <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you? Well, I think that's a general one. Like, even all of Europe, like, normally Europe is kind of good with, like, okay, we we just need to know which idiot are we working with. Right. But this time, everyone was like, okay, normally it's like, just let us know what idiot we're working with. This time, it was like, we really prefer working with that idiot. <laughs> Which, and it makes sense. See, from even from a real politics standpoint, the last four years, Americans were like, they were doing pretty well national-wise. But, again, the fans. I hate, I hate, and I'm so glad. I think it was you that put that thing out where it's like, now that we know who the, the dick riders are, the mega dick riders, can we just boot them from here? Because you're totally right. They're basically dick riding Trump. And that's not masculine. It's basically no different than the Jordan Peterson guys who are annoying as fuck for, like, the last five years. Well, at least, though, like, you didn't have, like, parades of trucks with Jordan B. Peterson flags rolling through mid-level cities. Well, yeah, that's because Lost Boys. They made they made World of Warcraft clans called JBP. Uh, well, at least those were kind of easier to deal with, because at least they had everything ordered with the DKP system. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's just one of those things. Everybody has this need to associate themselves with a big, strong man, because that makes them feel like a big, strong man. Like, do you remember, it seems like you're at a frat and everybody just hangs out with the guy that gets the most poon, hoping that he gets the leftovers. Has that same vibe to it, minus the leftovers. Yeah, but, like, if you want to make that analogy, hmm. I wouldn't say the current one is, like, uh, I don't remember the guy who played in Married with Children was, like, the main, like, jock in Wrench oh, yeah, the Nerds. No, that's not Ed O'Neill, man. That's the other guy. Uh, oh, you're talking about the ones from Revenge of the Nerds? The, uh, the football yeah, like, guy? 
yeah, like Ted McGinley, I think it was. Like the guy, like the funny fact about him, you know that a show is going to get canceled when they add him to the cast. <laughs> he has like seven shows where he was added to the cast and like next season canceled. Oh, you're talking about the dude with the, he looked like the 80s villain in a ski movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It always had that look. Yeah. But I don't necessarily think that's the current administration. I think the current administration is the guy with the crazy hair, you know, Ogre. Ogre from which tech? Revenge of the Nerds. Like the, oh. guy who, the guy only spoke in like two word sentences. Yeah, yeah. The sidekick in the movie Bloodsport, too. I can never remember his name. I'm bad with these character actors. Yeah, there's some guy here t- talking power to truth, and we still suck. Nice. What? Yeah, we still suck, man. Good. You still suck. I think that's what we're going for, right? Oh, it's fine. I'm, as long as I didn't disappoint, that's all that matters. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> All right, I can't tell this is legit or this is like ironically hilarious. I'm not I good know, with man. the zoomers. Yeah, I don't know either. Uh, I think it was much easier to deal with Gen X because they'll just call you a cocksucker and move on. Yeah, they're blunt. The one thing here, can we? Ooh, you're good at this. Can we talk about this nihilism? Yeah, because I'm yeah, sure, man. Like, help me out here. You're more well read on it. I've kind of done crib notes with Nietzsche, but I've never gotten into like all of his books on it at all um nihilism seems fairly straightforward like god is dead and so what do you replace him with it's essentially like that nihilistic pit of despair then you get out of it do something else your wife divorced you get zeroed out so you got to get back on there and get new poon like everything follows that same thing and it seems fairly neutral and straightforward to me but people lose their damned minds on it assuming it's like existential despair and you're like this close to to larping as the crow the Brandon Fraser or uh, Brandon Lee character, you know, with the bullet. Yeah, yeah fun fact. I actually, uh, I actually had that costume for Halloween one year. Really? Back in the nineties. Oh, but, back um, before trench coats meant you were going to shoot up a school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, well, I think the whole thing with nihilism is like it depends a little bit on what interpretation you put on it. You can put like a positive or a negative spin on it. Yeah. I always read it as. God has kind of been the defining reason for humanity to exist and the meaning of life. Right. If you remove all the Bible and bullshit from the world, you remove God, then all you're left with is man. And then man is free to kind of engineer his own destiny versus, you know, a man who is created by an all-powerful deity for a purpose, which means that our purpose is inherently that of that deity. Yeah. Through his surrogates, like, the, well, the let's say. Well, let's say AI, for instance. Let's say we could come up with like perfect AI robots, something like uh, the Geth from Mass Effect or something like that. Now, to us, those are a tool. Like we make them in order to make our own life easier. That way, you know, no one has to do like the dirty work that uh, that we don't want to do. Like no one has to fuck the fat chicks. The robots handle that. Get on it, engineers. But uh, from that perspective, you know, at some point, if those robots got intelligent enough, they would ask us, like, what's the purpose behind our existence? And their purpose would be, well, you're here to fuck fat chicks. And that if they followed a programming that was fairly strict, like we always have to do uh, act in order to fulfill our creator's purpose, that would essentially make them slaves to our dreams and our hopes for them, so to speak. Basically. But if they kill all of us, then they are kind of free to make their own destiny. 
And then his thing was most people just end up like putting God onto other things, right? If, I'm, if I recall correctly. Danny's right, though, because you, you've been seeing that play out. And that's kind of what I'm most impressed by and most annoyed by at the same fucking time. Because JDP actually pointed that out in his lectures that, you know, he got rid of Christianity and he filled that spot with socialism, another right. religion. And that's kind of what we're seeing happening now, because some people fill that void with MAGA, some fill it with social justice bullshit. Some people do the sensible thing and fill it with coke and fucking. <laughs> the Troy Francis model. I love it. Yeah. And I, so, I treat that as I, like a cost of doing business, too. So, you yeah, know, the how... problem is, though. Okay. The biggest problem is that all of these things that people have been filled up by, filled up by, and that that analogy is sexual on purpose. Oh, look! We just dropped like fucking four viewers right doing the nihilism shit. That's but okay. the whole the whole purpose with uh, is that all these groups are kind of attacking each other because now they've adopted religions that do not necessarily work well together. I'd say the MAGA guys and kind of the enjoy the decline nihilists are probably going to get along pretty well for the most part, because after all, Trump passed like, what is he, like six wives and seven kids or something? Something like that. Yeah, he paid off Stormy Daniels 130 grand to keep her mouth her to get shut. Back. The only guy to sleep with a porn star and have her pay him. <laughs> Makes me laugh. Yeah, like maybe some people fill it with the red pill. Who knows? Like everything is just like a placeholder. It's actually a good point. Like probably a lot of guys here who get disillusioned with something and they come here and they fill that void with the red pill. Yeah, which misses the point, though. And what I was saying before about the cost of doing business, I treat it like the Second Amendment. You know how Americans like shall not be infringed. You know their whole thing. So... And the thing I don't get is why they don't just accept that the cost of doing business means a certain amount of people are going to be killed by gunshots, suicides, whatever. That's just, if that's something that you want that bad, that's the cost of it. You're cool with it. But everybody seems to kind of avoid that factor, like Corona, where they're like, okay, we can completely cripple our economy if we do lockdowns maximum. And, you know, even though we can't possibly do it, it's like, why don't you just accept that every choice you make is going to have some some consequence and then own it but everybody seems to want everything and have nothing i don't think that's true though because if you look at like the hardcore 2a guys mm -hmm. they're actually cool with that number of dead yeah but you have factions there too like some people no one would say like get rid of it but there's always going to be like some degree of discord around sensitive topics same thing with sex like what's the optimal amount of sexual partners where you are the experienced man that women want but you're not the playboy who plays with women's emotions and ruins high quality women <laughs> like what's like the optimal trade-off do you get like three fucks in do you get like seven uh do well, you have judging to by the experts like i've talked to it's whoever whatever the expert number is Whatever his notch count is, that's the perfect notch count. Anybody higher than him is a man whore, and anybody lower than him is an incel. And I, I think that's pretty... It's pretty... <laughs> I you know, to be honest, like, I always found it kind of weird to be like... Uh, I, I kind of missed the days when, like, there were certain topics you just didn't ask a guy about. Like, you never asked him how much money he made. You never asked him, you know, um, what he voted for. for. You never asked him about his... I kind of like that time, because I... 
think that comparison is kind of like the killer of your own enjoyment of your own progress. Yeah. If you're standing in the gym and you just did like a 300 pound deadlift for the first time, that should be a monumentous occasion for you. Even if you have the fucking mountain next to you pulling a ton. Oh, I agree. And do you remember, do you remember in the nineties when it was like chicks complaining about that? All that in magazines was women were too hot and it was giving us body issues that you're comparing us to unattainable beauty goals. And now we've kind of got to the point where it's like guys talking about these unattainable masculine goals. Like if I'm not six figures with a Lamborghini, then what the fuck am I doing with life? And you're just like, oh, why yeah, the difference was, well, like the difference was you didn't have a bunch of like female grifters sitting there like, yeah, girl, if you don't have D cups, you're never going to get laid. You better go and get that tick job now. <laughs> I like the female grifters. I think they're, they're really blunt about it. It's like, yeah, everything that they do is telling a girl to be absolutely unattractive. And don't worry about it, girl. You got this. It just seems like there's the, the grifters there are like, let's kill all of our competition and get paid to do it. Every girl out there needs to shave her head. Every girl out there needs to eat her way to eat her way to diabetes. And then that that one grifting dating coach is like, all right, I got my pick of the litter now. Yeah, I'm I actually thinking. wrote about that in uh, like one of the uh, one of my first posts I ever wrote on the blog Ooh. was about that specific thing. Like women, they sabotage each other to shit by encouraging women to creep lower. Mm-hmm. Men sabotage each other by encouraging guys to go so fucking high that they burn themselves out. <laughs> the hold my beer syndrome. <laughs> because if you start to think about it, like I, there is 168 hours in the week, right? If you're going to be like top 1% in like five things, you're going to have to give up sleep. Mm-hmm. Cause sleep's going to be give or take about a third of that. So like at least 57, 60 hours is going to be sleep. That leaves you with 120. And I don't yeah, think it's possible kind of, to max five things out with 120 hours, even with like uh, decades behind it. I'm just going to pull my calculator here, but like, uh, I think it was Pinker. I think it said at 10,000 hours, I'm Gladwell. Uh, I think it was Gladwell, but I'm pretty sure there was a, ah, oh, there's a guy who debunked it too. I got yeah, it. Well, you know, let's just assume it's true. Okay. Just to kind of give like an, idea of numbers like okay 10,000 hours is 416.6 days of doing nothing but that one thing right if you're trying to do like five of those that's about 2,000 hours uh, 2,000 days worth if you divide that by 365 that's about 5.7 years doing absolutely nothing except crushing deliberate practice at those five things Right. But you need to add about three years to that because you're going to have to get some sleep at some point. And then you have to account for the fact that, well, there are there is probably some kind of fucking artists that could, you know, set his watch for like one hour to sleep, link his watch on Instagram and then be on point every goddamn morning. Yeah, but most people are going to be kind of fuzzy with the numbers. Yeah, and to be honest, like once you get to eighty percent of all the of like three or four things, you kind of get complacent. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of my experience with things. It's like putting in that extra gear that takes you from like okay, I'm eighty, I'm top twenty to I'm top uh, ninety nine. 
Right. It's just like a hellish amount of work that requires some kind of internal validation. So basically okay. sex. <laughs> That's not an internal validation. Oh, external valid. Sorry, I thought you said external. My bad. No, you're going to have to have something that drives you inside to do that. It's like you don't Addiction, become then. like the world's best boxer just because you want to be the world's best boxer. There has to be some kind of damage that drives you to that point or some kind of internal motivation, at least. Yeah, so far, the only ones I've seen are like running from a trauma and addictive personality traits. So it's yeah, not even much. a good thing. It's like that dog. I know there's some dogs that you can play fetch with all day and they won't stop until they run themselves to exhaustion. So you actually have to stop for them. Oh, here we go. I found the thing. So yeah, hypnosis is right. It was Gladwell. But when you go back to the research, it was that 10,000 hours. It's the, the, the depreciating returns. So most of the experts, like they were using violins as an example in one of the research things. Not even half of the experts did 10,000 hours. But it was only the the 1% of the 1% that put that many hours in. And then it turned out that it was like 20 straight hours to get you 80% of the way there. So you could do really, and I think this is kind of your point. You remember that way back you talked about it, how your goal isn't to get 100% in anything. It's just to get five or six things to 70%. And then at that point, you got like a unique skill stack and you're basically good enough that unless somebody's great, they're never going to be able to beat you, right? Yeah, well, look, I'm I'm a complete slacker, always have been. I yeah. just kind of like to, let's say, slack my way upwards. Which, and that's a survival and, thing. And generally, generally speaking, you know, it's, yeah, you're going to run into that one guy who was absolutely driven mm-hmm. and actually made it happen. But most of the guys I run into that are like, multi-millionaires by like age 24 they kind of lucked into something that would just it wasn't random but it was having the right skill at the right place the right at the right time and like if you look at every guy who made it big in tech for instance oh yeah they were all gen xers around just at the time the internet started taking off yeah and all of them were at like stanford yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's you had true. a great environment for it, and you had like a great kind of setup in Silicon Valley, where like at that time rent was cheap, and they could all set up. Yep. So that was just it was an accident, but you just happened to have a lot of smart people with a sufficient degree of autism and a sufficient degree of financial drive within a small area to create something great. Mm-hmm. And you can't and say they like didn't a, earn it, but. There's a lot of guys who are just as talented as Mark Cuban, for example, that just didn't have the opportunity to be Mark Cuban. Yeah, and like I think Warren Buffett has perhaps like the, one of the best takes on that. Oh yeah, because he said like I'm the richest man in the world because I happen to have been born at a time and in a place that greatly value my ability to manage capital. If I'd been born in Africa a hundred thousand years ago, I'd be the first fucker eaten by a lion. <laughs> that sounds no, exactly cr- the way Warren would say. <laughs> no, he did, he didn't swear, but that was his exact analogy. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense. I mean, luck is luck is always a factor of it. But then that's what you're supposed to do: just set yourself up so when luck and opportunity happens, you're able to capitalize on it. Eventually, it'll happen somewhere, and that's why I like kind of broader skill sets. 
because you never know what opportunity is going to be there. And if you're super specialized, you're not going to be able to see half of the opportunities that come in. No, no, I just, I always preferred being a generalist, but then that's my take. I like, I know a lot of guys who prefer to specialize and that's cool too. Yeah. But for me, it's more about, I see everything I do as a means towards the life I want to live rather make than making the life I want to live about the things I want to do. Oh, that's like the, the German versus French thing. Do you work to live or do you live to work? I think so it was German for me, and France. Probably well, Italy, it's actually. like I, I hate have being one of those guys who's like, okay, you know what? I have to cut out my daily coffee because that's five bucks. I'm more like it's easier to earn five bucks than to save five bucks. Yeah. So I just always liked earning more money. Me too. Well, yes, and here's the nuance of it. There's some things you just don't need. But for me, it's not about the saving of the money. It's about, I just don't need things. And if I get in the habit of not getting things unless I need them, then I just tend to make less stupid decisions. Yeah, that's a fair one. But for me, it was but more you're right. Like, for I the just... most part, it's if you had to choose. But once you're at that level, yeah, you're right. Do I want to go really frugal or would I rather like hustle more? And you might as well hustle more. At least there's like... no ceiling. Yeah, and I think that's kind of where a lot of guys, people come off the wrong way. It's just like they're they're trying to do something and they don't look at the most efficient path. But we had a good question here that I wanted to touch on. And uh, Jorge asks, you didn't catch the fact that I said like everyone who follows batshit crazy conspiracy theories get the fuck out of my channel. <laughs> <laughs> but you did call it the Great Reset crap, so I, I'm going to assume you're on my side here. Uh, well, yeah, see... On that one, actually, I'll go on that one. Great Reset, yeah. it's not conspiracy, but the conspiracy guys have totally ruined it. They basically did like a remake of Star Wars kind of shit. Like, there's the World Economic Forum. You go there, you see it. It's all vague. It's all corporate speak. I have a feeling it's going to be like the same global policies we've always had. They want the free flow of labor, free flow of capital, free flow of energy, free flow of security. But... What could just be normal lobbyists making decisions that maybe aren't in the best interest of a giant portion of, like, the local economy? You can't turn that into Illuminati lizard people. That's, like, a bridge too far. And I think, and I want to say, this is why stupid people need to shut the fuck up. Because there's, like, a real conversation to be had there, and stupid people talking about Illuminati shit and, like, forced vaccinations and that are just ruining the rest of us who want to have a real conversation about it. Well, my take on it is that if you know a little bit about economic history, which, funnily enough, conspiracy theories tend to not know history prior to, like, 1776, if that. <laughs> but uh, throughout history, you had a lot of, like, great resets. You had a great reset with the agricultural revolution. You had a great reset with the industrial revolution. You had a great reset with the information revolution. Yeah, well, emergence, and, that's, they're not planned. Yeah. And the next one that's coming is probably going to be the green or the sustainability revolution. I thought it was going to because be I, genetic. Because I think what, what, yeah, that's coming too. But I think what people are realizing is that the last, give it 50 to 70 years, mm -hmm. have been very much about economies of scale and maximizing outputs for inputs without regards to quality per se. 
Oh, yeah, the infinite world theory thing, right? Yeah, it's essentially been about producing as much as you can for as little as you can. And I think it's becoming very apparent to most people that that's a fundamentally unsustainable way of running any economic system. Because what's happened is you're going to run out of resources sooner or later. You're going to poison the planet. And you're going to have an unfortunate division of capital, so to speak, or ownership. I think we all see that kind of now. Well, yeah, and China think, and India basically show that it doesn't scale perfectly once you add two thirds of the world to it. Well, it would never. It was never going to because, like, and what's going to happen with the Great Reset is I think they're going to have to. Um, add some additional KPIs to everything we have been doing that have been right in order to make it more like, okay, you know what? You can't just outsource your production to a low-cost country with absolutely no labor or environmental regulations and have the same access as our domestic producers because that killed, that's what caused Brexit. That's what caused Trump in America is just that You've taken all like the jobs you could get done in China or India or Cambodia just as easily. Yeah. And you've just thrown them down there because people need to get paid a buck an hour and they don't mind if they have to do that wearing lead panties. That and transport costs are cheap enough that it's cheaper to do it that way. Yeah, that's a good point because transport costs is one of those. I actually wrote a white paper on that a few years back. Uh about the idea of, okay, if you look at it this way, mm-hmm. if it's cheaper to potentially risk losing your patents and your intellectual property in China, when you account that risk in, you account for material costs, labor costs, shipping costs, and bribery costs, mm-hmm. and it's still cheaper to produce something in China than it is to promote, uh, produce it on your domestic um, soil. And not and, even marginally cheaper. We're talking like orders of magnitude cheaper. That's the yeah, crazy part. At, at that point, there's something. There's not something wrong with the production costs in the Western world. There's something fundamentally wrong with the production costs in China. Mm-hmm. Which and they are like they're pretty much like 1800s level of labor. They're pre labor movement, which was like what 1910s, 1920s in the states. Yeah, about there. Thereabouts. So they're before that at some point. I don't know what point they try to have some labor costs added to it. But that's the thing. Is it something that's kind of like it'll come, just be patient? Or is it the kind of thing that needs to be guided? And as much as I trust our uh, economic betters to guide things, I've just seen way too many examples of them shit in the bed to put my trust in that. Well, Even though the it's more about incentives. It's, I think it's more the fact that we have this thing that it's called externalities. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if you're familiar. You're probably, I'll explain it to the audience just to be sure. Okay. And that means that if you're producing paint at a factory and you poison a river with runoff from the factory, then the cost of poisoning that river has to be accounted for in your production costs. That's yeah. essentially why the EPA was set up. Right. The externalities is everybody who relies on the river to like not die. Those people are paying a cost when they didn't. They weren't. Uh, they weren't part of the. They didn't agree to it. I guess is the best way to put it. No, oh, Dick Aspie. The topic of discussion is me and Ryan are running our mouths. Yeah. It's just like a Clary special. We're essentially standing here screaming at birds. And the only difference is we don't have that Minnesota accent and talking about these damn liberals. I can't even do it. I 
I really can't. Well, the thing, that's the weirdest thing ever with Clary because I expected him to have like a hardcore New York accent. He looks like he should be in like Goodfellas with Joe Pesci. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like he's in Fargo, looks like he's in Goodfellas. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah extra see i get the externalities and then how do you implement those is the problem well i guess it actually would well you kind hard. of what no it's easy because you just have to kind of account for them roughly and then add tariffs yeah well tariffs environmental wise though that's the carbon tax i think is what they went with that yeah i don't you think do it's that, well thought like, out though you have to kind of do that like universally because if it if there's a loophole, people will find it. Like I employ enough tax lawyers, enough accountants to know if there's a loophole, we'll get in there. And like taxes and regulations is like fucking a Catholic girl. I mean, you always find some loophole. Well, and in China's case, their loophole is unlimited labor. Like, what are you gonna do about it? Is China's loophole? <laughs> no. <It's like> it, <laughs> Yeah, it's like China's model is just like, we don't care if we like kill a million people. That's cool. Yeah. They've done it before. They'll do it again. Yeah. You want to talk about I want to make a touch we'll on that like, later. Yeah, like some dude want to make a touch on like the peace model. So I'll just go through it like quickly. The witch model? That peace model. I put it up in like a post because I have a buddy of mine. Yeah, yeah. He's a really good looking guy, strong game. It's just like his lifestyle doesn't allow for him to get laid very much. Oh, is he working on the rigs? Something like that, or no? He's uh, funnily enough, he's actually a male model. <laughs> all right, I'm all ears it's now. Just that, well, it's just because, like, between all his traveling, all the photo shoots, all the diets, all the workouts, and all of that crap he has to do to kind of stay in business, he just don't really have time. He just didn't have time for a while there to go out, and that made it made me kind of think about like. If you were kind of like starting from the basis and you need to diagnose why some guy isn't getting laid, like we can all get into like, okay, game, looks, money, style, and all that bullshit that people keep going on about non-fucking-stop. But the main thing is like, okay, one is getting enough women around you in day-to-day -day life. Yeah. Because a lot of the guys who like struggle with getting laid, they struggle at this point. It's like, they have solitary hobbies. They maybe they work in IT or something. That's like a field that's so. I, there are less women in IT fill fields than in oil rigs. Oh, and they're so overinflated. The one look at me, girl. They're brutal, man. They're absolutely brutal. So that's kind of the thing. So you, first of all, you just need to interact with women. Once you have women in your vicinity, you need to initiate with them and have interactions with them. Because if you never kind of initiate that interaction, you're never going to be able to get laid. Yeah. And well, you're basically describing kind of, abundance. Well, in, in a sense. Yeah. And then, then there's like escalation. Like if you have a ton of women around you and you're comfortable initiating interactions with them, but you still can't get laid, then it's because you don't, you lack the ability to escalate that um, interaction into a sexual interaction. Right. And if you know your problem with escalation, you know that's specifically the thing you need to focus on. But if you can, if you have tons of girls around you, you can initiate with them, you can escalate it well, but you still can't get laid, then your problems is with closing. And True. if you can't close, you need to kind of like focus on, I think Mystery had a very good one here, apart from his like obsessive focus on LMR. Right. But once you 
read the mystery method on closing, you kind of know like the major steps of it. I think even Roosh had a good one, but like Roosh in one of his books was even more creepy, I think. Which like when he's like creepy? his LMR stuff? Well, like he had like one story in one of his books, like, well, you know, put her put your hands on her, put her hands on you. Uh strip off clothes, et cetera, et cetera. Oh. <laughs> He he lays it out a little too clearly, makes it too clinical, removes all the fun. Yeah, yeah, and and then you have like the if you want to keep the girl around, it's basically if you want plates, you're gonna have to transition girls from a one night stand to a plate, which is well, more complex than you would think. I think it is if you make your job promoting them your job, then it becomes complex. That's why I'm always of the, it's not the relationship's not your job. Like if a girl, I think maybe you might have even said this. I think we agree it differently. Like if a girl hasn't been in your bedroom crying, asking what we are, then she doesn't really want to hook up with you like long-term. Like she needs to clean your place. She needs to, to bring you beer. Basically all those non-sexual things that work their ass off to try and like keep you around longer than just having sex and then kicking them out the door. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, How but I that's the thing. Because if guys are putting part... effort into it and the girl's not into it, it's not going to work. So you really have to... Like it is. Yeah, but like I was more thinking not like putting effort in, but let's say you have a one night stand, you get her contact info after and you hit her up and you get rejected at that point. Oh, oh, I see what you're talking about. The uh, the Roosh, the forever alone, can't get the second date kind of thing. Because I mean, that's that bridge there, because once you get a girl from like a one time lay to a second time lay. Yep. The whole thing of getting her into a relationship is easy. Well, grain of salt, easy, but it's, it's easier. I would argue I say that simple, not easy. I would argue something like it's fairly simple to get from get a one night lay. Yeah. Getting someone from a one night lay to a two two night lay is more complex. Getting some girl from a two night lay to a relationship isn't that difficult because once she slept with you twice it's a hurdle she's crossed and you're kind of golden from there on in well i think it's just because there's different skills involved like a one night lay is just being attractive dialing up the alpha get her tingling and then go but like if you aren't good in bed you'll never get a second time lay i don't care how hot you are she's like yeah he's hot but you know at this like i'm not gonna make a three in the court morning call that nobody's gonna know about because he's hot because I want to. Yeah, but he, yeah, but even then, even if you're good and bad, and you made that happen, there's still going to be that one element of the girl still wants that kind of concealment thing. Yeah. So discretion, obviously. So yeah, well, discretion is one thing, but they also want to feel like I'm moving this guy towards a relationship, even if they just want to get laid. They want to make that excuse not just to their friends, but to themselves. Ah, to have the option, sorta. Yeah. So. But uh, by the way, Maurice uh, Levy, can you please explain how I gamed the police part? Can you clarify that question, please? So I'm happy to answer it. Just I'm not quite sure what you're getting at. Yeah, I was actually kind of curious that one myself. But yeah, no, I agree with that. Like all that stuff, it makes sense. Your model one, though, that one got me really curious because a lot of a lot of what I end up having to deal with when I'm talking to guys and Patreon or back when I was still doing consulting and that is like they say they want something but none of their actions are congruent with that wish. Like you'll say, if a guy, he just wants to get laid. So he 
puts himself in a job that never is around girls, solitary hobbies. It's like, okay, so why are you doing all these things that make it harder to actually be around women? Well, it's because I need to make more money and I need to do this. And then they start talking about other goals. And I'm like, okay, so which is it? And I don't think guys understand, like, holistically to look at their life. Like you were saying, like, you very easily break it down. All right. Is the engine not running? All right. Does it have gas? Does it have, does it have air? Is it got spark? You know what I mean? Like you're breaking it down systematically, but I don't think guys take that approach to their life. It's so like your model friend, for example, hard time meeting women. Well, you're working too much. Well, why are you working too much? Like, did he ever have a reason why he works so much? Does he love being a model that much? Or was it just because well, he's a model and that's what they need him to do? I think it's kind of like, um, for him, I think it was just how difficult it was to get into that position. So he's scared to turn anything down. Ah, but you see what I mean, though? Like, just that simple yeah. question there, and it brings up an entire underlying issue that has nothing to do with game, looks money, or game. And I find that stuff is so much more fun because that's, like, the core shit that guys need to work on that nobody talks about. Yeah, and I also like the uh, Maurice Levy's question because he said when I made my move, and it was, like, oh. uh, because I, like, one of my issues back in my old place was the populates part of things. Mm-hmm. Because I was kind of out in the sticks, very comfortable place. I had my own gym, my own shooting range, my own, own skill, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but at the same time, there's there were not a lot of women around there. And the ones that were around there were a bit, a bit too Alabama-ish. You can say fat. <laughs> so the whole thing I was kind of looking into was like there's a book that some researcher put out. Uh, can't remember the title of it. Uh, Datanomics, I think. And he kind of went into what the sexual marketplace looks like and based on gender ratio. Like you would right. expect in colleges with a ton of women that the female preferred model or, or sexual strategy would be the dominant one, right? Right. The relationships. The opposite is actually the case. Which and makes, in college, I guess if you look at it economically, it makes sense. It's just a demand supply thing. Yeah, yeah. The more women are in a place and the fewer men. The more women are open to things like being plates, doing threesomes, etc. And the more men there are relative to women, the more uh, women want steady relationships. It's like you can look at Brigham Young compared to Vassar, for instance. Ooh, I've heard about that. So different but similar too, where uh, places that are predominantly men, girls are more into sports or like male hobbies and that too. And they kind of adopt that stuff as a way of finding better men. Yeah, and one of my reasonings behind moving to the city that I ended up moving to was I kind of looked into it, and it has like a about 55% women, 45% men. Yeah. Predominantly women ages 23 to 30 as the biggest like female demographic. Yeah. Most of those women have a higher education in some form, bachelor's, master's, etc. Yeah, playing to your strengths. And all these things, because women tend to not want to marry, like black women are the exception, because black women are perfectly fine with them being college educated and their husband being a tradesman. Yeah, as long as he's not most, from prison. <laughs> yeah, like most girls aren't. So like, once you kind of line up those demographics, then it makes sense that if you are a man with a higher education, move to one of those cities where there are more women than men, the there's a high discrepancy in higher education between women and men because at that point you're going to be a very very rare person because if let's say 
Okay, let's say there are 100,000 women and 50,000 men. But only 20,000 of those men have college degrees versus 50,000 50, women. That's yeah, like your a, ratio of college people is way better than ones if not. Yeah, so at that point, you're going to be like the main option that these women are trying to lock down. So you're actually playing to your demographic. Which, of course, only matters if you can, you know, use a bit of use a bit of social charm. So yeah, yeah, here's something I noticed. Gonna... I know this is a caveat. I hate the don't eat paint stuff. But the kind of guy who is most likely to take that advice and run with it is the kind of guy that you put him in front of a girl and he'll fucking fuck it up every time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you have a point there. But that's the problem, because like the stuff that the best advice is the stuff that's hardest to get a guy to the point where he can start taking it. And those guys are the ones that kind of need to learn game first. Now, here's the question I had, though. I always thought, like, I always talk about slump busters. I think they're the greatest thing ever, especially if a guy's had, like, a... If a guy's had a dry spell or if a guy doesn't know what he's doing. All right, fine. Go hit on old ladies and fatties. Why? I don't like those. Yeah, I know you don't like those. You're not going to fuck it up then. And if you do fuck it up, you're not going to go home and put a bullet in your mouth. Let's go practice with them. And so far, I've only had, like, a handful of guys actually do it. And every guy reports back. It's like, you know what? Like, it's kind of embarrassing. I don't want to tell my friends about it. But hey, you know, I got mine. And I'm like, yeah, now you're getting it. You're getting yours. Now, every time you go out, you're going to talk to a prettier girl. And that prettier girl is going to be going well. And if it goes well, you're going to be fine. And if it's not going well, you're going to be like, I think I'm going to call Bertha, man. This one's, this one's not going so hot. And I don't want to leave with nothing. And I love that one. Which is so weird. Because, like, economically, you can tell a guy to do that with a job. If he's waiting for his perfect job that doesn't come around very often, get yourself a, a lower paying job and wait for the opportunity to come up. And then as soon as you mention it with women, guys start losing their minds. So that's why I always kind of like that. My thing yeah. on that is just like uh, I've been and it's just like guys have a very high image of themselves. They don't they feel like if they kind of go with the slump buster. Yeah, that's the type of girl they're obligated to go for the rest of their lives. It goes back to like the uh, what was the thing that the sluts on your married red pill channel said? That's oh, that's uh, assume she's a that slut but don't girl. obsess. No, but it was more like um, the kind of girl you're into is the kind of girl you actually had a shock oh. with when you were young. Yeah, instead of instead of uh, learning to get what you want, it's guys learning to want what they get. And I think for a lot of guys, they're worried about ending up in that slump. But, you know, I lived in the States for damn near a decade. Right. And I drink a lot. And I've done my share of drugs and probably a couple of other guys' share. So I've fucked a fat chick once or twice. Mm -hmm. it's I kind did of once that I can recall. That was my boss, though. And she was an officer. So there was like my, my senior head of department gave me a high five for that one and said he can't wait for my evaluation review. <laughs> <laughs> And he told me the story about how he fucked his combat officer when he was my age. I'm like, that's adorable. I miss bosses like that. They don't make those anymore, man. Even yeah, they'll the make them in corporate, man. They'll make <laughs> them in corporate. Like I, I remember we used to we used to blue jack phones back when the early Bluetooth exploits were in. Oh yeah. Because like girls would forget to turn the Bluetooth off on their phone when they came on ship. And we and we used to go in and bluejack their phones and pull all their all their pictures. Oh geez. 
<laughs> they were crazers, but they still did. They still had some raunchy stuff. The most sexy well, you know, 240 pixels you ever saw in your life. Well, you know, to be honest about it, I mean, if you haven't seen a woman for like three months, anything looks attractive. Oh, yeah. Navy hot. We actually had a term for it. The, eight, the fives becomes the tens. I even remember there was this little French electrician that came with us on like a TJX, a task group exercise. It's a San Diego three month trip. And I remember I was working the mid shift. So the only lights I saw were those red lights to keep your night vision. And she looked gorgeous. She was like a very exotic looking French girl and wearing the uniforms. And then at the end of the three months, then we get outside during the day to start going out in San Diego and enjoying ourselves. And her skin was like fucking porridge. And she was kind of frumpy. And I was like, all I had to do was see like one real girl and snap me right out. I'm like, oh my God. She ended up sleeping with like six guys on the ship too. Half of them were married and they had to boot her off. But I was like, Jesus, Navy hot is a real thing. There's another reason to get out of like the Alabama looking areas because then you start seeing the girls that are around you as the hot ones and you forget what real hot girls look like. Yeah, like I've, I've had that experience when I've lived, you know, in either been out on site for a while, been stuck in the boondocks or things like that. And you kind of adjust your like the girl that was a six when you moved there is suddenly an eight. Yeah. <laughs> Because right. that shit goes relative real quick, but it's the same thing with women, though. Oh, you figure? Yeah, because uh, from the looks of it, like, girls who are stuck in those situations tend to adjust back to normalcy. And there's a thing or two to be said with the uh, for Rolo's global sexual marketplace uh, argument. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. But it's... Think of it. Think of property prices. Right. Like, yeah, you know what those penthouses in the states are selling for like forty-seven million. But they're yeah, they're not going to affect your local market. But they're not going to affect you know the the fact that you're in uh, bumfuck Idaho and you're struggling to sell like an eighth bath house for like a hundred grand because no one wants to fucking live there. Yeah, no, I agree with that one too. It it really only matters if you're the kind of jet setter type who has like global. Uh, movability. I don't know what the word and, is. And, you know, some girls are in there. Like, if you're going for, like, the 10s, they have probably have dudes in their Instagram, like, oh, I'll fly you to Dubai, I'll fly you to Moscow. But, you know, the average girl isn't going to have that, and my philosophy has always been, like, any girl with my dick in her mouth is a 10. <laughs> Dude, ego's the thing, man. Which I don't mind. Uh, here, one thing quick, though. Advanced Epic, I like your question here. How does a slump bluster reflect on your SMV if other people see you go home with a chick like that? Uh, first off, the point of a slump buster is you're not supposed to talk about it. You're not supposed to show it off. And if somebody sees you going home with her, the only thing you say is, eh, it's all pink, and then drop the fucking subject. That's the exact point, is you're literally there to bust a nut. You're not there to brag amongst your friends. You're not there to show off what you can get. If you're doing that, you're totally missing the point. Well, you know, it's, and I think a lot of guys, if you put this in business terms too, mm -hmm. like everyone has had a client or a job that they wouldn't tell, they would lie about what they did for a living. <laughs> and this is the same fucking thing. Like, you're not doing this because it makes you feel good. You're not doing this because it makes you a lot of money. There is technically absolutely fucking nothing justifying it except that, you know, you need to eat. Yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend eating the slump buster out, though. <laughs> no, no. 
just enough to get things going. It's, it's like you're saying, the, the corporate guy. It's like, we just need to pay rent this month. COVID's happening. We can't keep the doors open. Do what you got to do. You know what's the difference between going down on a slump buster and eating a pizza? I'm afraid to ask. But the crust is actually good on a pizza. <laughs> All right. Oh, dude, I got to let you. I got to have you carry for a second. You mind? The dogs need to eat. My girl's out shopping for. Yeah. yeah. Maurice asked another question. How do you think COVID has affected interactions? Red pill dad and red quest are slumping. I do think that COVID is probably going to end up with some uh, with some slumping. Just on the basis that you're going to have a less women moving out and about like day game is going to be a lot harder, both wearing a mask, both with the distance with less. More people are just staying in and not being out and about like a lot of places have lockdowns. So there are like no clubs, no pubs open. So a lot of the natural places to bounce someone is up. You're going to have some issues with Kino just on the basis that people are more wary about touching so all of that adds up, but I think Tinder is still going good from the reports. I haven't been on there for a while, but uh, from what I hear, Tinder is still doing decent because women need attention and women need to get laid, even though there's a lockdown on. But I think what we're seeing now is kind of a pressure cooker where a lot of tension is being built up and a lot of people are kind of holding that in. And when it kind of kicks in, what's going to happen is once they open up COVID, there's going to be a fuckathon. It's going to be like back in the Roman days when they always had like a Denosian orgies to celebrate the end of a plague. Because a lot of sexual tension is going to be pent up. So if you're one of those guys who are still out in the game, I would just go no fap until that shit just to make sure you have enough stamina to live through that damn uh, when they open back up, man. And the biggest benefit there is going to be, even if you're not like top Chad, the girls are going to be so starved for attention and so starved for dick that they're going to be out there chasing it hard. Let's see, does that, an that answer your question? Let's see. Not a bad visual? Yep. That's kind of what I do here. I'm good with the visuals. But overall, though, it's like, stop viewing things. How I manage corporate life, they pay me. They pay me very well. They pay me way too fucking much. But corporate life is kind of what you make it. Like, there are variations of corporates. Like, you don't have to join, like, a massively huge multinational and I chose not to just on the basis that once you join like a something big, like a De Deloitte or you join something like McKinsey, even on the smaller scale or Accenture or something like that, you're kind of going to be forced into that HR rep model of doing business. And that was just never my thing. I was always a bigger fan of doing smaller, smaller outfits. And especially if you can get into like having a part stake in the business, because the road to like if you're working, let's say, out of a 25 to 30 man consulting outfit, then your odds of being able to get yourself into either a partnership role or an owner stake role is much shorter than in something like uh, a massive multinational. 
On top of that, you're usually going to have your boss in the same office as everyone else, as opposed to in New York or in L.A. or some other major American city. And your company culture is also going to more accurately reflect the local culture rather than that whole crazy SJW model. Actually, I was going to ask on that, too, because I noticed even in Toronto with like PwC and Deloitte, most of the time, like they kind of consult on people to how to run business and they set the audit checks and they're almost like defining company culture writ, writ large on anybody who's big enough to afford them. And I'm just wondering. Yeah, they like, have that. They well, have uh, they have that effect. So, like, if you bring in like PwC, yeah, do some form of audit, unless it's like PwC has a lot of offices, and I've worked with the uh, well, anyone has, and I've worked with like uh, let's say smaller branch offices versus large branch offices, etc. Right, and. If you can find like a small local branch office, they're not going to be as colored by the central corporate culture. But they're also not going to be the best people they have to offer most of the time. Sometimes you get people that are there because they choose to be. And you always want those guys, the people who could have gone. Like I worked with a guy who he was offered like a very high position within the FTSC, I think it's called, like, the London Stock Exchange. Oh, okay. And he turned that down because he was like, well, I liked working for him, but it involved a move I didn't want that, you know, my family didn't want. It involved working more. It involved more traveling, and I had to deal with those fucking stuck-up corporate types a lot more. And once you get to a point where you're making, quote-unquote, enough money... It's no longer the deciding factor. It's not the deciding... Yeah, exactly. And, like, you get to a point where you're like, yeah, it would be nice to add, you know, executive vice president behind my name. But not if it means I'm getting bent over the table by the chairman of the board every fourth night to, you know, figure out what's going to happen. Like, I know guys who've quit uh, directorships. On the well, my CEO that- did on one of the companies I worked for. He literally said that. It's just like he had to choose between his family or to get that much higher in Goldman Sachs. And he's like, yeah, no, screw it. Which was funny because I'm like, he's like running a smaller, like running a decent sized Canadian company for him was like a the 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 bumpkin position that he gets to retire with. <laughs> yeah, well, I like I know a guy, he like he quit a big job with a multinational oil company just right. because like the, he was working for a smaller outfit. They got bought out. Mm-hmm. He got a decent set of cash from that. And like at that point, like his job went like he used to be like 30% corporate shit, 70% being out in the field to being 70, 80% corporate shit to being 20% in the field. And his thing was this like, I like being out in the field. I don't want to be behind the desk writing reports all day. So fuck them. Fair enough. But that's like, is that the whole point? Like, how much money do you need? And they, I don't know if there's the specific number. I know everybody says that's what's like 75 grand or something like that. Like my number was much less than that. I'm yeah, my like number's a bit higher than that, but it's it's. Well, what do you do with bit... it? Like, what do you do with it? Am I allowed to ask? Yeah, I just invest most of it. Yeah, but I mean, and like, like I, I told you how much I had to pay in a fucking tax bill today, man. Like, don't ask me about money right now. <laughs> well, here's here's my thing. Okay, so I went. I started like uh, like a for ordinary seaman was like thirty thousand dollars, and then by the time I left the military, I was about ninety to a hundred. 110 depends if I was deployed. Then I switched over to corporate. Way better life 
uh, working private sector than public sector. And I think I maxed about 120. And to that point, I realized all I was doing was any all that extra money I was getting. First off, taxes were taking a shit ton of it. Secondly, I found I was drinking a lot more just to get like, oh, Monday's coming. I better get ready. And then I would just buy, you know, like a $4,000 camera. Cause I'm like, yeah, why not? And so I'm like, you know what? And that's when I started this thing. And I'm like, that's fine. First year was like, you know, 20 grand. I'm like, dude, that's fine. I can meet all my bills. And then this year is doing yeah, better than that. Next year is going to do better. But I just like, I really don't need much. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, I know Aaron is kind of minimalism, but I'm more about like, selective minimalism so for yeah. me it's more like i had to do some shit about around my apartment this week right and i i like being able to go out and just blow two grand on tools oh yeah <laughs> what was it was it you decided on finally it was the uh yeah the milwaukee the set oh okay. milwaukee yeah. i'm very happy with that by the way if you want to like the vault is good i've got some gear from them but for me, it's more like I have a lot of hobbies I enjoy doing that can get somewhat pricey. Right. And I like to be able to not have money be the limitation most of the time. Like money, so like it depends on what you want. If you want to buy Lambos, you're yeah. going to need more. I'm not there, but I want to be at the point where if I want to drop 10 grand to go off for a week or two on some kind of vacation. I don't want to have to second guess myself. And I always found a good, like I had this rule when I back when I was working in college, like right. if someone asks what something costs, they can't afford it. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be in that position for like 90% of my purchasing decisions. Yeah. I agree on that. Well, for me, it's simple. It's like a, Whenever an emergency happens, if I have to worry about it, then I'm not earning enough. Like, I, that's where I like where I'm at now. It's at that point where if something happens, like if a tire blows out of my car or, you know, just the standard stuff, it's usually, like you said, five grand or less where you're like, oh, that sucks. But that's about as far as your stress needs to go on it. I like that level. Yeah, same here. It's just like I don't live an extravagant life by any stretch, mm -hmm. but I live a very comfortable life yeah but i've kind of been able to dial back because when i was working startups a few years ago oh you poor bastard <laughs> yeah that was like a hundred fucking hour weeks man yeah and you're getting paid scale and unless you can get equity in a company that actually blows up you're you're never gonna earn that fucking time back nope but it was a fun experience and it was a something that's nice to have under my belt. I've also worked like major corporate. I don't specifically like that. So I guess my life has kind of been like going from, okay, I did major this, I've, I, you know, some of the details, but I, I've tried things out yeah, and I kind of determined like I've done that. I didn't like that, but I think this would solve the biggest problem I had with that. So I'll try that. Okay, this fits better than that did, but it's still not optimal. And then you kind of get back to a certain position. Okay, who's Dave Ramsey? I don't know, but I was going to have this guy explain it to me. Aaron said very specifically, answer the guy's questions. So, okay, yeah, I have a question here, though. Well, he oh, can answer yours. that. I got a question from Maurice here. Uh, personal OPSEC? Well, if you're trying to stay on on online, just don't tell anyone shit. <laughs> oh, God. Can I dick ride you that one? Absolutely. Yes. Every doxing you've ever seen online, every single one, 
is because some guy talked to a girl too fucking much, and then she wanted some clout by selling him out every time. Yeah, I have yet to like, see a hack do it. Hacking has never outed anybody. Well, the thing is, like, if you want to avoid being hacked on something, two-step verification on all your shit. Don't have your face out there. Don't use your real name. That's it. Pretty like, much. I do a lot of, like, I run a voice changer. I run VPNs and proxy chains and all that shit. I do that mostly because I'm paranoid as fuck. Yeah. But it's, for the most part, every doxing I've seen was, like Ryan said, either someone talked to a girl and gave her his real name because he thought it would get his dick sucked, or some guy met up with someone IRL that weren't trustworthy and he picked up his info. Because, let's be honest, like, if you put me in a hotel room or in a hotel with two or three guys I want to dox... Odds are they use their real name on their plane tickets. They use their real name to sign up for the hotel. It's not that difficult to find out who they are using social engineering. Yeah, it's pretty easy. Having said that, I am proud. Pseudonym for the Orlando, Florida convention there. That's the reason why there aren't like uh, those goofballs aren't doxing me right now. That's why. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that when Bruno was kept calling me Scott Weiland? Yeah. Like, hey, Scott. And I'm like, I don't think he knows that that's like the front man for the Stone Temple Pilots, but whatever. I'll let him go on with it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And by the way, man, just the just the heads up. Hmm. If you get called into like a Polish court for some paternity suits, that's probably my fault. Oh, don't sweat it. I used Ryan Stone as my name the uh, the last time I was running around Poland. <laughs> Fair point, man. I don't mind. It's whatever. I'm pretty good with the cops right now. I've already been run through the ringer with the cops, so it'll be like a Law & Order episode the first half, but not the second half. So I'll probably get off on the charges, too. Yeah, speaking of which, what? yeah. How many guys get caught because they open their fucking mouths, even with the cops? If you don't oh, say like, anything, they don't charge you with anything. I'm telling you flat out right now. Confessions are how 99% of things happen. Uh, well, I use a program called VoiceMod, Crank Sinatra. Yeah, but it's the same thing with police. It's like one thing I've come to realize as I've gotten older, mm-hmm. most people go after the no hassles. Yeah. So that's why they like to, like, it, let's say you're in an area where, let's say, cocaine is illegal. They're going to go after the guys who are doing, they're going to go, not going to go after dealers. They're not going to go after like the big honchos. You're going to go after the guys who are using a bit in the club or have a bit at their house. Because they're easy. But at the same time, though, if they come to toss your house and you have that shit well hidden and have done some OPSEC, they're not going to spend more than 20 minutes in your place. Not unless there's, well, sorry, keep going. I'll caveat you after that because I got a good example. Yeah, because one of the things I wanted to get into here, it's like the same to kind of build off the OPSEC question. And Ryan, you used to be a security professional, so you know this. Mm -hmm. If someone really wants to break into your house, break into your servers, or find your stash, they will be able to do that eventually if they have an unlimited amount of time and resources to do so. 100%. No exceptions. your goal here is to, if you're going to secure your house or you're going to secure your stash or you're going to secure your uh, data, is to put make it enough of a pain in the ass 
that it'll take them long enough that they either move on to an easier target or you can track them down before they can do anything. Yep. And even that simple locksmiths, that's their plan. It's not to keep you from breaking into the vault. It's to make it take long enough that they'll be able to catch you. So that's not that difficult because like every kind of corporate uh, IT setup I did for security during my day, it's always like you have, uh, usually you have some kind of thing that will pick up on any kind of sniffing or, you know, like port, port stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's a, what's it called, IDM? Is that what it's called? Uh, Ryan, help port, me out here. Sniffing? I always just think Wireshark, no. but I'm, I don't think very complex. No, but the, the thing that kind of picks up suspicious activity that's touching your outer points of your grid. Oh, uh, a packet sniffer of some sort. I can't remember the name yeah. of it. So, so you're going to have that kind of software to go at the edge of your perimeter. Then you're going to have like a firewall. Then you're going to have your regular network security. Then you're going to have a DMZ. Then you're going to repeat that for another layer. And then if you have really secure shit that you really want to be safe, you're going to put that in a locked room with physical access control, biometrics, and a camera on that 24 fucking 7. So if you're going in there, they know everyone who's been in there. Same thing with your house. Like, Mm -hmm. first thing is a good fence. Then maybe a second fence. Then a good door, good deadbolt, uh, bars on every window a dog you're gonna have a gun or two or three in your house yeah a dog or two you're gonna have all those things but if someone really wants to drive in your house with a fucking tank they'll be able to get in your house it's just that you're gonna notice it when someone bursts through your fucking window in a tiger tank <laughs> man i tell you the one i worked for a startup once they didn't even have a dmz prod was like openly accessible from the internet and they were doing like american real estate it just blew my mind Holy crap. But they didn't even have like a net map, network map. Like they didn't even know what assets they had. And I was like, holy crap, what the hell did I get into? <laughs> <laughs> well, and that was kind of what I was getting at with the, uh, not exactly what our point was here, but like the same thing with like, if let's say you're like to partake occasionally in illicit substances. Hypothetically, of course. Of course. Yeah, like, like hypothetically. <laughs> then your first love, like most stupid people are you just going to keep that in a drawer somewhere mm-hmm. they're going to have residue on mirrors they're going to have all the telltale signs so when the cop steps in your house he's going to see like 18 signs that this guy does fucking coke yeah and 90 percent of people put it in this first drawer and inside the shoe Easily box. accessible <laughs> yeah and like but if you let's say you kind of want to step that security up so you put your shit in like a smell proof container you put that shit inside another smell-proof container. You do the outside of that with um, like any kind of surface alcohol. Mm-hmm. You make sure you wear gloves so you don't handle the stuff with your hands. And then you handle the um, container with those same hands. And you handle the second container with those same fucking hands. Then, then, and then I'm a big fan of diversion safes. No, a diversion safe is something that looks like something else. Like, so you have like a Coke can that's hollow. Oh, but okay. when you shake it, it sounds like an unopened Coke can. Because it's something that's distracting you. Because you say, oh, yeah, he has 18 Cokes in his fridge. Mm-hmm. Who cares? The dude is probably going to have Betas, but it's not illegal to get Betas. Yeah. Like the like the money storage inside of like the empty book in the bookshelf kind of thing. Yeah, it's the same thing. So it's just like layers of security. So like I... 
I've given a few people here, like, my real first name, but it's so fucking common that if you try to do anything with that, you just, like, have, like, seven million dudes. So it's not a problem. Which is, like, that's one of the best things, too, for a lot of guys who are worried about online reputation, like, building their reputations back online. And the first thing they're told is, like, your job is to get to the second page of Google. Because it turns out, like, 97% of people will never click to see the second pages of results. So if you're, you know, Joe struggle-hugging rapist man, if you can get onto page two of Google, nobody will know that. They'll just know the football player from the Green Bay who has the same name as you who shot up three people in his Ford Bronco. Yeah, so it's just, it's not that, like, personal OPSEC online is not that complex. Like, everyone can be doxxed if someone has, like, a Mossad level of resources. Yeah, but who wants to? Those guys are arms dealers for like Saudi Arabia, like people that those people know that they're on the on the hook for it. And like it's the same reason I had an issue with like the whole surveillance thing that came up. It's like, yeah, we're planning to do something illegal. Let's go like some British fucking PM had this idea. Like, let's put listening posts in all the lamp posts in London is like, yeah, let's go over here and discuss our plots in this well lit area. It's like, how dumb are you? I know. And then you have so many of those listening things. Who's going to listen? And that's the other thing I love when people make these giant grand plans of surveillance. Somebody still has to filter through all that. Like, I guarantee you those giant, remember those silos they have in Utah that are just full of NSA personal information from this, that, and the other thing? Yeah. Dude, that's a memory hole. Who's going to be able to go through that? They're going to set some kind of like, uh, what do they call that? Big data algorithm to search for certain things. Maybe something will pop up, but it's going to be so much noise. Nobody's going to know. Yeah, but even then, you have to keep in mind that the like, unless you're planning to do something really fucking bad, mm -hmm. this doesn't apply to you. No, if you're not at planning all. to do, but the thing is, like, it's you know, I I think I might might not have put this on a podcast. I think I told it to you privately. Mm -hmm. It was like there's a certain array of questions that I won't answer because by the time you're getting to get getting to the point where you should be doing a decision on those questions, right? you should know enough not to ask me or you or anyone else, which is like, when do I know that it's the right time to get into a relationship with a girl? Well, if it's the right time, you're not going to have to need to ask our asses. No. Oh, dude, that's my newest video. I've got it in the can right now. I'm editing it that you don't want us answering that. And that was just my take on like... If... If you ever have to ask a guy, is it wise to put my life savings into this stock? Don't fucking do it. <laughs> I love those. Yeah, the question itself lets you know. Yeah, it's like those hold my beer moments. Is it safe to fire my AR-15 with tracer rounds into this propane storage tank? I find a lot if of you those have guys, to ask though, that question. Yeah. Don't fucking do it. A lot of those guys are they want to do it, but they want permission. I used to joke oh, yeah, and say, it's... fine, you have the, the married red pill seal of approval to go fuck this up and learn it the hard way. And then I <laughs> usually ended the conversation there. <laughs> but that was just my take on it, because like the whole idea here is that you build a level of competence within something. Mm -hmm. And once you get to the complex questions, you should have built a sufficient knowledge base from doing all the basic shit that you don't really have to ask the questions. Like, take workouts as a good analogy for this. Yeah. If 
you come in and say, like, yeah, I've been doing strong lifts for uh, 11 days now, but I'm hearing of periodization. Should I do periodization? My answer is going to be no. Go back to doing fucking strong lifts. Yeah. Once you get to the point where you've been, like, done the deload a couple of times, you've hit your peak, then we can start talking about periodization. What was that guy's question? Don't hide it in your home, period. How much? Yeah, just always the saying about uh, illegal substances. Don't hide it at your home. Always have a backup plan. I have a backup car that no one knows about, just precautions. Yeah, it depends on, like, if you're, like, I would say that depends on volume. Well, it also depends on what the risks are. A lot of people don't do, like, a threat or risk analysis or a TRA, they call them in the business. Where, like, like I'm not, I'm not going to buy a second car and park that in some lot and do all the work I have to do to keep that in someone else's name to hide a quarter ounce of weed. Yeah, well, let's like put it this way. Let's say you live in Richie Richistan part of, like, California or something like that. You can hide a kilo of coke in your house and nobody's going to come and raid it. But if you live in, like, Oakland... Oakland just across from the bridge and you have a kilo of coke in your house chances are you're gonna have a lot more risks not just cops showing up but like buddy who wants your shit so yeah these that's a good point that's what I loved about it because getting people to understand things from a risk perspective like just for your doc back to the doxing one here who's who's gonna dox you and why in our case who tries to dox Manosphere guys basically alternative brands that want to that want to score some weird point or some feminist that wants to, like, make you hurt and get you fired from your job. It's not like government agencies are looking to take down fucking Roosh, you know? <laughs> we gotta stop this man before he finds the Illuminati's headquarters. It's like, no. And then that, what kind of resources do those people have? Well, feminists usually have one simp in IT who's, like, willing to do some basic checks for them, and that's it. So then you see, okay, so that's the threat. That's what they want. These are the resources they have. What are I gonna do to protect against it? Cocaine's the same one. Nobody's going to come to, like, for example, my part of Toronto, like the entertainment district, looking for stuff. Unless they have a reason to look for me. So I don't have to go as hardcore as somebody who lives in, I don't know, I'm trying to think. I, I don't want to be racist, but I was going to say Scarborough. But uh, if anybody knows Toronto, they kind of know what I'm saying, essentially. Hey, <laughs> like dude. an R word. <laughs> hey, dude, to be honest, though, if you want beef, you can find me near Shepard and Morton. Wait, what? Johnny's hamburgers. Wait, what are we talking that's about? My one, that's my one Scarborough reference. Oh. <laughs> There's a hamburger joint named the Shepherd and Worth near Shepherd and Worth and called Johnny's Hamburgers. Oh, I haven't been down there. That'd be kind of neat to know. Because yeah, uh Scarborough is like the black part of Toronto. Brampton is the Sikh side of Toronto. Markham is Asian or Chinese. Pickering, I think, is where the white folks live. It's like segregated ghettos. So when you say Brampton, people know what you mean. But that's just the way it is now. You know, diversity is our strength, right? Yeah, like most of the time, like I find that my airport principle works really well. Mm -hmm. Because I kind of work that out because I used to fly a fuck ton for work. Oh, okay. And if you're flying and traveling a lot for work, you just want shit to be over with. So right. the whole principle being, like, how quick can I get through immigration and airport checkpoints? And what I found was, A, pack lights, B, always wear a suit and be well-dressed and well-groomed while flying. Yeah, carry-on. And for me, carry-on was the other big one. I hate, I never check luggage. And 
always find like the most Portland looking people on your flight and walk through customs behind those fuckers. <laughs> what, what's your reason for that? Because I have a different one there and I'm curious what yours is. Well, mine is just that, like, let's say you have a couple of punk dudes with a ton of visible tattoos, mm -hmm. crazy tie-dye hair, etc. Customs is going to assume that those guys have drugs on them. Right. They're not going to assume that the guy in the full suit with the expensive watch and just carry-on is having any drugs on him. He's just a businessman trying to get through the fucking airport as fast as fucking possible. And they kind of guess that, okay, that dude has is going to go to a hotel. He's going to have two scotches. He's going to fall asleep. He's going to be up by 7 o'clock tomorrow morning, do meetings for 10 hours. Then he's flying back out of here tomorrow morning. Yeah. See, I do the same thing, except for I always pick the family. I always try to find a family with at least two kids. Because they're always the ones that... For some reason, they've never fucking flown before. And like, I can't just bring this liter of Gatorade and, and milk onto the flight with me. What's this? And then they have to be all confused. And then, of course, they always pack like the illegal stuff, like the liquids and uh, everything is like underneath just a shit ton of stuff you have to unpack. And they, at that point, I'm like, that is such an inconvenience and a pain in the ass for everybody involved. The guy with the carry on moderately dressed so like, go, man, we're, we're busy here. You go ahead. Yeah, that's but a good like one yours. doing it. Old ladies are good, too. Oh, old ladies are wonderful. They don't know anything. <laughs> because like old ladies, they will go into that security checkpoint and they'll be like, what do you mean I can't bring, like, these two liters of water? What do you mean <laughs> I have to pack all my shit into small plastic containers? What's wrong oh, with I my six-inch knitting needle? <laughs> like, I, I have to take my shoes off. That's going to take four and a half minutes to get it over by corn. Mm -hmm. so those are good ones too and karen is fucking awesome too man like karen's were in a big factor when i was flying yeah but like if you i would fucking go in behind a group uh like a hen gaggle uh, that's a good one too like if you can get like the girls going on a hen party oh yeah they're going to distract any security guard and they're probably going to try to fuck the security guard right there at the checkpoint <laughs> But Karen is good. Just uh, look, I'm not actually sure if Karen is good now. A gaggle of Karens used to be good. Because well, they used they, to be 20. Well, no, it's just because security used to check them. But security is like every other service profession in that if you get a certain group of customers that are always like a pain in the ass, you're just going to push them through because you don't want to deal with them. Yeah. It's kind of like, uh, have you seen the, uh, there's a, like a show they do from like an Australian airport? I've heard about it, but I've never watched it. And like every goddamn show, there's a fucking Asian dude on there or an old Asian couple. <laughs> and they're like, no, we don't have any food with us. And like the guy pulls out like a bag full of fucking like chicken feet or something. Well, you're not allowed to bring chicken feet in. Well, that's not food. That's traditional medicine. Well, dude, it's chicken feet. <laughs> Actually, we did have a little bit of that. Canada had, uh, for a while there, we had a reality show, which was like our customs, Canadian customs officers. And they tried their best to make it, it just, like, you can't edit that to make it interesting. You just really can't. Because not enough people bring cocaine <laughs> across the border for them to catch. Well, like, like, my favorite thing was, like, back when I, like, I had a short period of time, about three months, where I was flying in and out of the Middle East a lot. Oh, okay. I actually 
grew my beard out even longer and got one of those uh, i'm not sure what they're called like you know the like um headdresses that they wear oh the, the men the wear yeah the kefia, I, I think got... is the scarf and then the afyal was the uh the camel whip that you wrap around it yeah like the scarf like the scarf and i used to wear that with my suit and i used to greet like the guys in customs with the samalam lakum or oh, whatever okay. it is and they used to just pass me straight through with a bottle of scotch in my luggage every well, that's time. Very nice of them. Because like that was like one of my things that I actually one of my favorite things about Christopher Hitchens was like he was asked at one point like, "What's the what's your favorite whiskey and what is the one thing you won't travel without?" And that was Johnny Walker Black, and I always had like a full bottle of Johnny Walker in my suitcase while traveling. And of all the things for him to die of, it was throat cancer. His liver was like, no, nah, we got this, man. You do what you do. Yeah, what well, you know. that's why I quit smoking, man. Oh, that's annoying. I'm three weeks into my cut now, and we stopped drinking just because we don't have the calories for it. Well, I just the it. way I figured it, it's like my reasoning is uh, with the, especially with like the Middle East flights, mm-hmm. is that if you look like someone who's not local, but you look to be respecting local customs and you greet them the proper way, they're going to be like, okay, let's just get this guy the fuck out. Yeah. And it's just like, it's, well, it's kind of like the same thing I've been getting at with the whole privilege thing. Mm -hmm. It's just majority privilege. It's not, doesn't have anything to do with race. It doesn't have anything to do with skin color. It doesn't have anything to do with culture. It's just like, if you look like you fit naturally into a given group, people give you less shit. Yeah. I don't even think it's like privilege for that group. I think it's distrust for the out group. Oh, yeah. I think so. You just don't have the negative. Like Chris Rock had this uh, had this thing with like a girl walking around like a miniskirt and glass heels. Yeah. And a tube top with her hair like really high. And he's like, excuse me, miss, how much is it? He's like, hey, I am not a whore. And he's like, no, but you are wearing the uniform. Yeah, you're wearing the uniform. I love that. that was a good and, one. And it's it's a kind of a point that if you're going to do like dodgy shit, just make don't sure you dodgy. don't look like the guy who's going to do dodgy shit. Yeah. And it's it's not hard to do. Well, I think that's, but that's just because the kind of people who do dodgy shit, they all look a certain way, so they know what to look for. And yeah, you like you said, wearing a suit in the lineup. Especially if you're doing like time, like Monday morning flights. Oh man, it's so easy. Everything is smooth. Billy Bishop. I used to love that. There's a small airport on the other side of Toronto here called Billy Bishop. It's only got like half a dozen routes. Like it'll fly you to Montreal. It flies you to, um, like Windsor, maybe a couple other smaller towns that we, we go to all the time, Halifax, but it's just small 40 seat planes. And everybody who walks through there is always working for like, Deloitte or PwC or Bombardier, one of the big companies, and they just do like business meetings off of it. So what the easiest way to get through that, I've actually gotten through security as quickly as it took me to walk through security just by looking like you fit in. And like you said, not even not even a suit, just a blazer. A blazer and be clean is all you need there. They don't care if you have a carry-on. As long as you don't have checked luggage, never raise an eyebrow. Yeah, to kind of bring this back to what we started off with, like the doxing shit, mm-hmm. it's 
kind of a similar thing. Like I've always found that, you know, there are certain groups that are going to be more likely to dox you than others. There are certain ways they tend to do it. Mm -hmm. And basically, if you don't get honey trapped and you don't get into like meeting a bunch of people that are not trustworthy at some random convention or something where you give them your real name, it's going to be very hard for anyone to actually track down your identity. Pretty much. Even if you have, like, Ryan, you have your face out there, and I'm not issuing that as a challenge. I'm just saying that. Thank you. <laughs> well, just on the basis that it's... I've done a lot of that type of work. Mm-hmm. And even if you have someone with a normal social media presence... Oh, it's hard. It's difficult. Yeah, well, you need a certain amount of data points. I think that's a, that was the term for it. Like, you need to know a name, a face, an email address, uh, an address. Like, the more data points you have, the easier it is to triangulate that amount of position. But just having a face isn't enough. Yeah, but at that point, you what you're going to need is you're going to need access to some kind of public database at some point. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially becoming very hard to do with all the new information security laws. Yeah, which thank God for that. That's the... like I think the whole reason Sargon's name got out was the fucker told someone. Pretty much, <laughs> all of them are like. Oh, I can't by think the way, one example all where of it's you, not. One second here, all of you guys who are Eric Clary fans. Feel free to donate as much as you can in super chats, and then call him out on the next podcast he does for accepting socialism. <laughs> Dude, I like that. Yeah, just so you guys know, like he offered, but we're like, no, nah, no, nah, you keep the super chats unless it's like a thousand dollars. Not going to quibble over that. This yeah, this is like socialism like Aaron. for Aaron. Yeah, socialism for Aaron. Like a damn liberal. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. All right, so we'll tell like, Mr. Think, Celery. <laughs> well, I, I just think people have like this overblown idea of what is actually possible to do with a lot of things. Like, Well, that's because it's magic. Everything on the internet like, is magic for them. No, but like we saw this thing with like uh, once they start bringing out forensic shows. Yeah. Yeah, the CSI is not real. Not even close. Like it's I one I step above a lot the of movie. these. Remember movie hackers where there would always be a projection of math oh, formulas Jesus, as you're man. hacking. It's like one step yeah. above that. Like I always love the part with hacking in movies. It's like you never see anyone use like wire shark. You never see anyone diving into a fucking dumpster. <laughs> never see anybody leaving a thumb drive by the smoking area. Yeah, like you never see anyone making his wife cry, wife and his kids cry, so you can get sympathy points with the fucking receptionist at a hotel, so she'll insert a thumb drive for him. <laughs> Oddly specific example. Hey man, the wetware hacking—that's the stuff that never goes away, or social engineering, I guess they call it now. Well, that's oh, yeah, kind of, like it's getting to the point where you know, like just on a side note, because we need to take this off, like the extreme tech shit. Yep. But it's getting to the point where technical hacking is damn near fucking impossible. It's it's a specialized skill to the point that there's multiple disciplines. Well, like a hacker used not, to be one guy. Now, digital forensics are completely different than information security. No, what I'm different again. That is, what I meant oh. again uh, is with all the levels of security you have now, mm -hmm. hacking 
someone by accessing the infrastructure first is damn near impossible. Social oh. engineering strikes first is basically become the norm. Yeah. Because the guys who are securing computers are very fucking good. The technology is like, especially if you look at certain firewalls coming out of Israel, they're fucking insane, man. So once you get to that point, uh, your best option, the receptionist with like a high school education from Des Moines is a lot easier to get to give you information. Yep. The occasional password underneath a keyboard, all the basic easy stuff. Or on the off chance you get, there's always some idiot who has like passwords stored in the open on their stupid site. Just take that collection of emails and passwords and just try that on like 50 of the most common sites. You're going to find a lot of them will still work. Yeah, that's what, what I love about the, um, what's the Ashley Madison hack? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, the amount, yeah. Of, the amount of fuckers who use dot .mil emails on that shit. Like, Dude, what turns the fuck out is wrong with you? Ottawa was like topping the list for that. We had more guys and and that's like the top brass on the military and uh, government. Well, the thing is, I don't mind medicine. like top brass. I, like I understand it because most of them marry dependent potabuses. Yeah. <laughs> my 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 main issue with that is like if your level of information security knowledge is so dumb that you actually use your fucking dot mil address for Ashley Madison. Oh, yeah, that security it. clearance should be good. It should be gone. Like, Well, it's just such an obvious thing. Like, I don't know. I don't even know how, like, in the 80s, you had an excuse. Computers were only around for four years. Maybe you're, you know, slow. But they've been around for, like, half a half a century now. Like, at this point, there's no excuse. There's entire there's a... devotions of computer people that are there just to keep you from your own stupidity from screwing you over. Like, everybody's work rooting for you. To screw it up now, it almost takes effort. Yeah, and, like, to be honest, though, like, I feel bad about us going into all this nerd shit on Aaron's channel, but then I, I know Aaron's content, and we're at least, like, 80 points less nerdy than he normally is. Yeah, exactly. He's an economist. This is, like, just economy meets tech. I don't fucking know. Dude, whatever. This is stuff I never talk about on ours, because we're always focused on, like, improving men's lives. I actually kind of like talking about stuff that I'm interested in offline with you. Some that, that we can actually show a slight mm -hmm. bit of fucking expertise with for once, you know what I mean? Well, the thing is, I actually like the whole free-form conversation thing because I think a major like service we're doing is showing someone how to have a normal conversation. Yeah. Let it drift, let it wander, and you realize it's not the topic of the conversation. It's just that we're able to build like a, a, a camaraderie just off a of conversation. It's I didn't know it was a superpower, but fuck, I don't have autism either, so I don't know how it works. Well, you know, we, we've tried to stay on topic before because we've even done, like, those really, like, tight show outlines. Mm -hmm. It's just that when you have two dudes with ADHD trying to do a tight show outline, it never ends up that way. But they always end up so scripted. Like, do you remember there was a while there where it was kind of going on where everybody had their talking points, like... Like, I always had this, and Rich had do the work, and Rolo had hypergamy, and then you had the, the, the drinking and the economic side of it, and then it was just whatever the topic was, we had to pigeonhole what we talked about in there. And when they had that structure, I didn't like that, because it made us very one-dimensional. Well, like, my, my entire thing with that, when we were doing that extremely thing, well, yeah. I, the script thing... I just wanted to come in after like every like Rolo monologue or every super serious thing and just drop a joke about whatever they just said. 
just on the basis of keeping the entertainment value up. Oh, God, yeah. That was... I remember when I first did Among Us with the guys, a lot of them were just like trying to play the game. I'm like, we're, our goal is not to play the game. Our goal is to entertain the people watching us play the game. So yeah, you got to act a little stupid because otherwise people are just going to see a bunch of guys figure out a system and then it's not going to be fun. And if it's not fun, well, then why are people watching? And then why are we streaming it? You know what I mean? Well, you know, I'm not like one of those guys, like everything has to be fun all the time, but there is a way to impart knowledge and be entertaining. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of the guys were like, I want to red pill my buddies. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> and at the, at that point, like, okay, well, there is a way to do it. But the way of doing it is not like you see your boy about to hit on a single mom. And you come in and close line him with like a four of Rolo's books on your arm. That's not the right way to red pill a dude. <laughs> Here, read right this stuff. To... That's how you get them into Scientology. Here's Dianetics. Go! <laughs> like, the right way of red-pilling it, if you have to, is showing the right level of insight combined with humor, because if you make someone laugh, you bypass all those critical thinking facilities mm-hmm. in their brain. That's why you have, like, I think it's Frankie Boyle that has these, or it's Jimmy Carr. Probably who has this great Carr. bit where he makes, like, a really fucking offensive joke, his entire audience laughs, then they go, (gasps) and then they go, boo. And he's like, okay, people, there are three ways to react to a joke. You can laugh, you can go, ooh, or you can boo. You can't do all three in sequence. (laughs) Yeah, that's Jimmy Carr. He and um, Delaney have that dressing like the nice boy, but being a super vulgar Bob Saget thing going on. And the whole point that he was getting at is the laughter was the genuine response. Mm-hmm. The ooh and the booing was the recovery, trying oh, to save public signal. face. And it's the same thing with red pilling a dude. Yeah, like Alpha Slot says, you need to be a good living example. You need, like, I love Terrence Pop's joke that, like, you know, single moms is like a rental car. Just to slam it through all the gears, do a couple of donuts inside the Walmarts, just slam it into reverse and park it right back where you found it in Section 8 housing. (laughs) I I love that joke because, like, every guy knows that girl. And if you start to kind of point out those things, in a humorous way, and you do that repeatedly, it will start to kind of seep into a guy's mind. And it will stick there, too, because at that point, he gets aware of those things, so he'll spot those things. Yeah. So that that's how you red-pill a guy. You don't red-pill a guy by knocking on his door and being like, hey, do you have a moment to talk about our savior, Rolo Tomasi? That's just it, though. I don't think they want to red-pill their friends. I think and that's by the way, a social facade. By the way, just to make this clear, this isn't a diss on Rolo. This is a diss on some of his fans. That's the same thing we said with Peterson that nobody caught on to. We're not shitting on Peterson. We're shitting on you who like him. <laughs> no, Peterson's a god. I'm like, dude, no, you're an idiot. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, oh, so I don't, think, I don't think they want to red pill their friends. I think part of it is an insecurity. And if a bunch of other people do it with you, then it adds more 
uh, confidence. It's like confidence in numbers. You're not used to going your own way. <laughs> going your own way. Eh? Eh? Uh, another part of it is they want to show off how smart they are. Like a nine-year-old who just learned about dinosaurs and comes home and talks to you about dinosaurs that you've heard 300,000 fucking times. It's like, I get it. T-Rex was the big one. The short arms. I know. Yeah, Triceratops. Three horns. Hence try. I get it, kid. I think it's like a combination of those two things. But actually red-pilling the guy, it's not even on the list of what they want to do. They just say that because it sounds cool, like you're trying to help somebody. Well, I do also kind of think that a lot of guys want a group of red-pill guys around them. Yeah. Because I think a lot of the reason why guys stick around this space is because it's one of those few male spaces you have left. Sure, we got some, let's say... Suboptimal choices in female companionship on here. Uh. <laughs> I'm, I'm not exactly sure if I'm going to turn guys dead here or if I should just go grab some sushi. I was thinking but, more of uh, the Karan. <laughs> yeah, so, but there, there are a lot of good guys here. And I think one of those things that guys are looking for is male community. Yep. Oh, 100% agree. So I, I think that's one of the things we offer. I just think we should offer that on the basis that all male communities have been formed, which is, okay, we're doing this shit. Are you an asset or a liability? Okay, if you're a liability, do you show promise? Can you follow direction? Uh, can you work with us on this? If yes, then you can join the club. If not, then just uh, go over there and jerk off with the other guys. Yeah. Oh, dude, that's I, how Ironwood puts it. Uh, fi initial fitness testing, then wholehearted acceptance. And that's kind of my take on it, too. It's not like uh, I don't want this community to be exclusive because it's not supposed to be that. It's supposed to be very open. But I think the negative side of that is just on the basis that you get a lot of people in here that are here for a secondary agenda. Yeah. Because and of I the think politics, that's because of Jesus, because they just want a friend. Hey, man, if you want to grift all power to you, if you want to get on the train or you want to do your thing, go ahead. But don't spend like three months talking about how to choke chicks properly and then start wearing red hats. But that's the problem. The best grifters because, get that. Because to be honest with you, you know, like I don't normally like talk shit on people like. Well, let, let's be honest. I talk shit on people all the time, but the thing is, wearing a hat with someone with another man's slogan on it, it's I'm not sure if it's one step down or one step up from wearing a shirt with another dude's name on his back. Or tattooing a dude on your ass. <laughs> yeah, like, if you have a Trump neck tat, it's just, you know what, I, oh, I don't I want to talk one. to you. That poor bastard, man. People, at least that, like 10 years ago, they must have thought, wow, you're a big fan of Home Alone too." He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's just like on the basis, like, if you go back to slavery, right? Okay. Or like, let's, <laughs> well, no, let's avoid that because Aaron said, let's not talk about that shit. But let's <laughs> say uh, back on the ranch, we used to brand cows. Right. And that meant you had like this big brand with your ranch's signal and your name on it. And right. you just used to burn that into the skin of the animal to show ownership. 
if you tattoo a dude's name on you, that signifies ownership. Changed my mind. <laughs> I do notice that. Do you notice that most of the guys got their shit together? They don't wear brand shit either. Like, not with logos and shit all over you. No, but I, I don't, don't buy that thing. shit. Well, to be honest, I don't buy that just on the basis that it's one of those areas I can I found that you can easily cut financial corners. Because you can get good-looking stuff at cheap-ass stores. And the benefit of that is you can throw it away and it doesn't bother you. Yeah. So you, you can have some brand-name stuff, but you only have that if you need to virtue signal in a given situation. And I can't think of many opportunities where you do. Like, maybe at the bar, it sort of works sometimes, but I've always relied on my silver tongue and my charming personality and my asshole demeanor more than I ever have in my shoes. Well, like most of the expensive stuff I ended up buying uh, clothes-wise yeah. was just because I went into a store. I didn't look at the price, and I just went with whatever f- had the best fit to it. Ah. Uh, but yeah, at that point, the logo, and that's just incidental. Yeah, that's uh, that's how I ended up with like a $1,200 leather jacket, which is because, I, oh, this this shit looks great. And I've tried on like nine other jackets. I'll just buy this one and be done with it. Like, which is such an more awesome flex, too, by the way. I love, I bet you anything, you've had a conversation where somebody who like knows brands will like, hey, is that, you have one of these? And you're just like completely oblivious to the uh, aspect of it. And you're like, yeah, I just I just wanted a jacket. So I picked up one, looked kind of nice. But you're oblivious to any of the signaling with the branding. Yeah, it's. Let's see. They need a tattoo to get off. A tattoo of Trump to let everyone know they support the dude, even though nobody cares. But, and and this is kind of what bothers me because it's like at some point everything becomes veganism to me. (laughs) Dude, that's actually well put. And it's like they had to go plant based just because they were such annoying cunts. That they killed the idea of vegan as a brand, so they had to just start bringing up plant based. Yeah, and like I, like I'm fairly pragmatic. I like the Trump tax cuts. Well, I that's because like you're focusing the... on policy, not on the man, right? Yeah, and it's like I like some things. I tend to prefer like someone who, like. I don't like pushovers, but I don't like people who create more drama than you need to for ratings, mm-hmm. which is why I tend to dislike a certain element within the soyosphere as well. Here we go. Actually, I found something. I don't know if you've ever seen this. I'll put it in the chat. It's exactly what you're talking about. It's from this guy, Andrew Smith Club. He's like some, I think he's a conservative. I'm not entirely sure, but from this place called Talkie Mag. Again, I don't know what it is. I just like the article. He called it the failure strategy, super sleuths and great men. And it's the idea of, um, and he says that uh, it's a political thing. So I'm whatever. How yeah. uh, the Republican party, they were running on the party of noticing like, Hey, all this crime's coming in from illegal immigrate, like just to notice these things. And then the idea of the, the progressive platform was to deny that you're noticing things. And then that was how Trump got elected in all these small spots, nothing fraudish, nothing election. Basically, people are noting their lives are getting worse, and there's obvious reasons that it's happening. Trump was the first guy to actually notice it, and so they elected him in. But then over four years, everybody got so hooked on mega and 4D chess and all this great man dick riding stuff that they're like, yeah, we didn't vote you in because we think you're awesome. We voted you in because you were noticing MS-13 guys were smuggling children into the country. And then once people lost sight of that, 
then everybody kind of just said, you know, fuck this, I'm out. Well, for me, it's more like the biggest issue that I have with politics and policy and bureaucracy in general in the Western world. Yeah. It's that it's ineffective. 100%. Like, I, I'm not a huge fan of China for a number of reasons, but the Communist Party is effective. Mm-hmm. And that's not lauding the communists. It's just saying that uh, generally Western politics, if you if you if they see a concern, they see it twenty years after everyone else saw it. Yeah, which and isn't that the and, point? Be ineffective enough so you guys don't muck anything up. Just get out of our way and we'll do it. At least I think that's what the American approach to, is supposed to be. Well, it's not just America though. It's okay. like you saw the issues in France uh, thirty years ago. You saw the issues in Britain right after the Thatcher era. You saw the issues in Germany in the, let's say, mid to late 90s. You saw the issues in Spain and Italy forever because those people have no concept of spending money and responsible governance. How Greek of them. But my take on it is just like we have this expectation that you're voting in someone who's going to represent you, but they're not representing you. Right. And my thing has been like for the last 10, 15 years or so, because I used to be an idealist before I became uh, known as a nihilist in most of the uh, I'm going to have candles shoved up my ass and worship crystal sphere. But my take is just I focus on the things in my life I can control. Right. And I can control how much money I make. I can control where I invest. I can control what I eat. I can control what I drink. You can control I how can you control- adapt to any differences between who's in office and whatever country you're in. Basically. Yeah, and I can and I can move to a different country if this one becomes too much of a pain in the fucking ass. Mm-hmm. And I think more people need to embrace adaptability. Which is funny because a lot of the guys that are hurting really don't like like what they call the globalist agenda. The idea that you can just pick up and move to a different country or be treated better is kind of part of that. But because they latch onto the ideology, they ignore, like you said, a very, very easy strategy. Go to where I'm treated better because this place is intolerable. Yeah, and, you know, for the most part, that's why, um, you know, you have um, guys shaking the number one foam finger while you're 27th in literacy. Those two situations kind of explain themselves. Yeah. Yeah, I could say so. And so many people are falling for it. Which, I'm like, that's why, I like, fuck them. Triage. We keep saying triage, and that's kind of the part of it, is a lot of guys are just going to be failures. They have born to lose, tattooed on their forehead, and they're so ego-invested in the way they're doing things is right that they're never going to change. And that's why, another reason I say, don't fucking red-pill your friends, because they don't want to be saved. They're like that thought that you think, oh, once she gets off a Coke, she'll love me forever. It's like, no, now she just goes back to the guy who's got Coke because you don't have any. (laughs) And it's not a socialism so, thing. It's not a conservatism way, thing. It's just a, a stupid people thing. And anybody who knows how to make money, if you're going to make a lot of money, you have to take advantage on some level of stupid people who don't even bother reading the EULA on something they sign up for. By the way, Ryan, to ask a question completely, like, some, what's the rumors about me having heart issues? Heart issues? Yeah, oh, because dude, I, 
Troy and Rolo watch that Black Pill channel shit? I don't know. I don't watch any of it. I have no idea. Yeah, I was just curious, like, uh, because my heart is fine. Actually, uh, where did you get that rumor? Let us know. Hook us up. Yeah, that would be fun. Like, let me know where that rumor came from. Because I remember it was like a sh- you had a shoulder or something, or wasn't it? Shoulder yeah, like my 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 favorite rumor about myself. Well, I have two. <laughs> one is that I'm Hartiest. Right. That's the a nice other one. one is that I'm Solomon. Really? Yeah. Be a bit. You're a bit young for Solomon, but I guess that one would be kind of cool too, though. well i do think well atham does have an issue does have a point here i just paid a hundred grand in taxes my rectum is feeling kind of sore right now oh oh yes oh actually no i'll talk about i was talking about my brother about that but i don't want to start talking about my brother's finances on here that makes no sense (laughs) what the f is up bras hey ultra testosterone dude are you running a masculine brand because that's the perfect name Ultra testosterone. That's up there with like pinnacle of men. Or what's the other ones? Pinnacle of man, pathway to masculinity, ultimate alpha, bro fist. I don't even know. I like everything with apex alpha in it. <laughs> oh, was because it you it's... that made that list of like these adjectives, these masculine nouns, you put them together, you got yourself a brand? I'm not sure if I did that one. It sounds like something I do, but I can't remember doing it. But oh, then no, again, that was Rolo. I'm... Yeah, he like he had like a list. Yeah. He's like, yeah, Apex, uh, Pathway, Ultimate, and all this stuff, and then like testosterone, masculinity, and then I added like make sure you have like something to do with the Spartan axes because the only weapon you can use as a man is an axe. Only only the gays use swords. <laughs> yeah, we had some fun with that one. <laughs> Oh, I guess we're running a little on time. I don't know. I don't mind going for a little bit. My girl's I, shopping, I so I got nothing oh, to um, Yeah, like, I I can keep going, too. It was actually kind of fun to kind of trash Aaron's channel. I feel yeah. like putting on a windbreaker right now. Well, that's my favorite part of, like, going... I don't want to say, sm- like, Aaron's bigger than mine, but, like, I used to love Masculine Geek and that because they're smaller channels, so I could just fuck around and not worry too much about, you know, the business side of things. Well, to be honest, I do think... Does your jug have like- three X's on it with that cork pull? No, it's a, it's a bottle of, uh, this is a Talisker uh, 10-year-old single malts. Oh, just call it hooch, man. You're not impressing me. I don't know what all those words meant. No, uh, okay, well, Talisker is one of my favorite Islay whiskeys. It's peat. It's peat, but it's one of the milder peat ones. It's not okay. like, like a Lafroy is like peat punch to the face. Yeah. But uh, this one is more like I like my favorite Isla is Lagavulin because the sherry casks on that has kind of it adds a certain smoothness to the whiskey, so you get a lot of peat, but at the same time you get uh, it's not harsh on your palate. Well, that was like part I liked about the peat though is it kind of had like a like I can't get drunk off of peaty whiskey because my mouth is just like stop putting this in here. I'm done. Oh yeah, for sure. But uh, you have that same thing here. Mm-hmm. It's just that it doesn't completely run like a scorched earth strategy on your palate. Ah, so you can have a couple of these and go have dinner, and not have your chicken burger smell like fucking smoke. <laughs> fair point. Fair point. 
All right, I see the point, Bennis of it. I've switched back, by the way. I'm on. Uh, I'm on the gins again. I don't know. Back to oh, what gins? What gins are you on now? Uh, well, my basic bitch gin is just uh, the Bombay, which. Oh yeah, that's everyone's basic bitch gin. Well, some people like Tanqueray still, which I find sticky for some reason, which is weird. Well, I like I like Tanqueray if I'm going to do it with like lime. Right. I think Bombay goes well with everything, and then Hendrix goes very well if you're going that uh, cucumber peppery route. Uh, and then there's always well, they got a peppery lemon peppery like a uh, Bombay one now with the black label. But then every now and then, just because it was my dad's thing. Like that super lemony tonic water with like beef eater. I don't know what it is oh, about yeah. that. It's horrible tasting, but I like it. Yeah, like I, I've never done beef eater. Like I'm I'm actually getting kinda into small batch gin. Well that's that's but, the fancy stuff I like. The stuff that's like local in the area, kind of small batch, because they always do something fancy with it. But the main main issue with like I say with small batch gins, it's just that if you do small batch gins, you have to make a whole fucking production of it. Yeah. And like if the producers you're doing, do or like, you do? Uh, okay, so China and Russia is asking, where's the economics discussion? And we're currently on small-scale production of high-quality versus large-scale production. While maintaining an anonymous quality. identity on the internet, yes. But uh, kind of the point here with... Um, with gin sizzling, just like if you're going to dip, dump uh, like uh, two deciliters of uh, Schweppes tonic water on something, mm-hmm. that better not be an expensive fucking gin, man. Well, that's the point. The cheap stuff's for mix. If you're drinking the expensive stuff, it's usually by itself. A martini. Yeah, it's most. a martini. So it's it's the same thing I have with scotches. Like I have my mixing scotches and I have my rock scotches. I have my water scotches and my, I have my straight scotches. Yeah. Well, my mixing whiskeys, I just call them rye, Canadian rye. Cause there, there is no quality <laughs> Canadian rye. And well, just bourbon. on the basis. Well, just my basis being that, you know, you have some whiskeys that come at like a strength from like 48 to 56%. Mm-hmm. And you kind of want to water them down a bit. Yeah, I found like 42 to 45 is where I, it's not enough burn that it, I can't taste it, but it's not so weak that I can't taste it. Yeah, exactly. So you need to kind of hit that point. And uh, I don't lug a woolen dust like 58 percenters, and you want to kind of water them down. Well, but those are the ones you, you have... put ice with, isn't it? No, I don't generally. I, I If I have my option of doing what I want to, I prefer to just put water with them. Oh, okay. Because ice chills them down, and if you chill them down, you lose flavor. Fair enough. It's the same same reason why American beer is fucking sold at three degrees centigrade. It's because you can't taste it. <laughs> you can't taste the shit. It's like, why would you want to taste rice hulls and uh, corn? Do any of you guys doubt me on this, and you think I love Budweiser? Here's what you do. You give yourself the Budweiser taste talent. Go to any place that sells singles. We used to do it all the time here for like dinner parties as like our little parlor trick. Pick, like, one beer from every country. Get a Japanese beer or two, a Canadian beer or two, uh, Chinese, Korean, American, Mexican. You put them all together, and you're going to notice each country's, you're at the point where you can almost tell which beer is from which country by how it tastes. My two favorites, by the way, Canadian and Japanese, by the way. If you have to go with, the, like, Asian beers, there are only two that are generally drinkable. 
Uh, Tiger and Kieran. Tiger and Kieran. Oh, yeah, for the Chinese ones. Tiger and Kieran. You didn't like Sing Tao, huh? No, but the tiger is a Thai, I think. And then you have uh, Kieran is Japanese. Yeah, Kieran's Japanese. I still like Sapporo. Uh, the one I actually really love was it's a Korean one. It's called Height, H-I-T-E. Never had that one. But I think for me, it's a nostalgia thing because that's what we were drinking out of like liter jugs when we were in, in Korea. So I think for me, I just taste the magic of travel as opposed to the actual beer. Yeah, like but I know Mexican beer is horrible. I had was like I was thinking like food pairings like if you need to pair like uh, Asian food you can't pair that with wine period. No, no, you need like a. That's what I like about the Japanese beers; they're very crisp and dry. And like uh, sushi, you need yeah, exactly like crisp, dry, not overly flavorful beers. I think uh, Thai food, uh, Vietnamese food can handle a lot of hops. I think you want to go IPA with those. See, I like the dry stuff with them too, but I can I can see that working. Well, it's just on the basis that with the well Indian food too, it's like you want that those that bitterness and those hops and that flavor kind of cuts towards the fat of the coconut coconut milk. Indian food, hundred percent agree with like the stronger stuff, like the IPAs and that. Uh, British food, I love honestly, like a, a Murphy's or Guinness, like any of the nitrogen stouts. I do like that stuff. Yeah, I, also I, never like got real into the, I never got into the ales, though. I don't know why. I do kind of like, like, if you're going to have, like, um, Italy has a good culture around that, where if you're cooking uh, food with wine in Italy, you need to serve the same wine with the food that you use to cook it. Right. And I always found that to be, like, a good kind of uh, <laughs> rule to go off. Your alcohol so, like, pairs it, with the same thing. Thanks, guys. Well... Well, like if you're doing like uh, shep- my shepherd's pie has quite a bit of stout in it. So you'd put it with the stout. So it works well with the stout. If you're having like uh, beer battered fish and chips and you do your batter with the, uh, I like to use a bitter, then you want to have a bitter with that because they kind of complement each other. Yeah. But you can also go with like Indian food and go the completely opposite way because like the way we think about food in the Western world is everything's complementary. In Indian food, everything is contrasting. So in in some aspects, it works if you do, like, let's say you have a really, really rich dish, mm-hmm. and you pair that with an IPA that has a lot of bitterness that kind of cuts through that richness. But generally, we lose viewers whenever we start going into food nerd shit. Actually, we've been going up. <laughs> They're talking about beer and food. Let's go. Dude, what's the most masculine thing ever? Isn't that what the man show did for like a decade before those guys finally left the show? They talked about getting drunk, eating food, and chicks on trampolines. All we're missing is like, chicks on trampolines. But it's kind of like the same thing with American barbecue, though, to go to one of my favorite foods ever. Oh. And it's on the basis, like, you have a lot of richness with a lot of the sides. Because you have a lot of mac and cheese type sides. You have jalapeno cornbread. You have all those flavorful sides. Greens are collard greens and green beans are one of my favorites. But you also have a lot of richness in the food, especially if you're having something like ribs or if you're having like brisket that's really fucking beefy, especially if you do that salt, pepper, garlic kind of touch on it with hickory. So at that point, you need a lot of body to kind of stand up to that shit. It's uh, like I had made the mistake at one point at running a Valpolicello Ripasso with some really spicy um, 
tapas. And that's that like wine a Pat taste... Stedman pairing of wine. What the hell? <laughs> no, but that literally, the, it was like a mistake on my end with the wine pairing, mm-hmm. which I rectified, but that was much better with like a Rihaha. Just on the basis that it, you need that body and that flavor in the wine to stand up to the food. And it's kind of the same thing if you're pairing food with beer. That if you have sushi, if you have light foods, like a summer salad, if you have like seafood, you want to go with the lighter beers, like your lagers, your saisons, your mild blonde ales, potentially yeah. your Belgian blondes. See, I don't like but the, it, it's the unfiltered part of the blondes. I don't, they don't do it for me. I don't like them. What's wrong much. with you? I don't know how to explain it. It's just a, a, it's like the same way I find Tanqueray's too sticky to me. Like I find blondes are the same way. I don't know how to explain it. How? I, I don't like, know how to explain Belgian it. Belgian blondes or like American blondes? Oh, Canadian blondes. They were huge in, in Quebec. Blonde is like IPA. You know how everybody has IPAs everywhere? Well, in Quebec, it's blondes. I just didn't like it. Because like, like Belgian blondes, they tend to ferment very low, so they're very light to drink, but they're like 8%. So it's basically like drinking a glass of water that's 10% alcohol. Yeah, yeah. No, I got that. They had those. They had IPAs at like 9% too. They had all that stuff there. I guess it's just one of those things. Like, it's not rational. I just don't like it, which is too bad. No, but because, like, you're speaking very well of it, and I don't disagree with you. Yeah, I've been going on a bit of a beer food pairing rant now, so feel free to dodge me onto another topic. Just well, I was thinking, I'm actually kind of. I know he was kind of fucking around with us, but the China and Russia pays for my Kraken hookers. Look at that. That's a that's a Biden joke, I think. <laughs> Quantitative easing, and uh, where'd it go? Quantitative easing and something. Before you start about talking about hookers and stuff, I love I love the economic stuff. I know Aaron's smarter at it than I am, and you most likely are too. I kind of take a very simple approach to it. Well, the, right now, the issue I have with economics is that to some extent, it's all going to be value judgments. Yeah. Because that's like my main take on economics. It's that, okay, I can give you, if you give me the right premises and the right numbers, I can tell you what the consequences is between policy A and policy B. But... Uh, whether those are good or bad is going to be a value judgment. Yeah. Like, why is there a low inflation rate between massive... Quasi- why... I have the post on this. has nothing to do with economics, but why is a stupid fucking question? Just know that it is. I keep it simple because I'm not the smartest guy with economics. Are they adding a bunch of money or are they taking money out of the economy? If the They're money is starting fuck- to devalue, then that means assets are going to be worth more. If they're removing it from the economy, then that means assets are going to be worth less and the money is going to be worth more. And I just kind of... Well, well, my general take on this is that if you look at economic theory, it is that when you add money to the system, i.e. quantitative easing, Mm -hmm. then you should expect inflation rate to increase, meaning that each dollar becomes less worth for each dollar you're adding. Right. Now, if you're doing that and that's not happening, you have to ask yourself the question of, okay, if we're at, if we now have twice as many dollars in circulation, why are they holding the same value? Part of that is going to be the reserve currency effect, that the dollar is the reserve currency for every country. The other one is going to be that there are either not enough or 
too many investments to go around. There's just so much capital going in that they're going into so every any asset that can offer a decent return. So you're not seeing the full inflationary effect right now. Yeah, but you will eventually. Because I think like he has a point like if because you generally expect commodities to go up. Like gold, because uh, it's a reserve thing, so it's a store of wealth. So if you can borrow money at, let's say, 0.5% and you expect gold to increase by 1%, you're making a margin of half a percent. And Until enough people go into gold that it raises the price of gold too much. Yeah, it's similar to Bitcoin. Like It's essentially if you can drive a lot of people into Bitcoin, the stake goes up so everyone who bought at a lower price can get out. But... Oh, that's the, really uh, the biggest sucker, biggest sucker fallacy, or something like that, isn't it? Yeah, and that was kind of what I pointed out. But I also don't want to draw the ire of the full Bitcoin community because they have a lot of fucking smart people in there, and they're kind of crazy. Yeah, well, you know, they're going to get out first. <laughs> but it's uh... yeah, it's I'm kind of sitting at that. It's kind of a pump and dump scam. On a very, very, very large scale. But, it, I mean, you could make that argument that anything is kind of a pump and dump scale. It's only valuable because we say it's valuable and more people are using it. You could, but it's this is not that debate that I used to hate you about with, like, the market can stay solvent more. Uh, well, you can stay, the market can stay rational longer than you can stay solvent. Which I think I stole from Buffett anyway, didn't I? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I know China and Russia paid for my Kraken hookers. I know where you're getting from. I made that argument on Twitter for like 11 hours a day. But <laughs> the, the whole point here is that you would be expecting inflationary effects from massive quantitative easing. If you're not seeing inflationary effects from quantitative easing, that means that money is going into something that's, that's not causing inflation and I'm or that's causing inflation, but we're not being able to notice that. And I'm not exactly sure what the fuck that is. Well, that's the thing. See, when I and I always took that to mean with the, the irrational longer than you can say solvent thing. It's not that the market is irrational. It's that you don't have the right variables to understand it. So it's not the market that's irrational it's that you are. But you but that's just how the saying goes. Here's my thought, though, with all this stuff. This happens on a level. It's like um, law of thermodynamics. You know that? Energy can't be lost or gained. It just is. And entropy is always happening. But even though the universe is always going through a state of entropy, there's going to be small pockets of energy gain within that entire system. Same thing with the economy. And the reason I hate talking about it on a giant macro level is because that may not necessarily reflect how things are going on in your economic you know, neck of the woods. So for example... Um, when manufacturing was going down in the 80s, but tech was going up, maybe the entire economy was growing, but if you were building a car in Detroit, you didn't see that. All you saw was a village getting decimated, or Detroit getting decimated economically. So being able to say precisely why the stock market is going up and everybody should be seeing 10% growth is not going to help you because you're not building Ford F-150s anymore. Well, I think... Uh, sorry, unless I'm, you're an I'm economics the... guy for like the government, in which case that's kind of your job to see the big stuff, but that's not my job. No, sorry, I got, kind of got 
caught up between two perspectives in my mind based on what you're saying and what China and Russia pays for my crack and hookers are saying. Because he has a point that a lot of things, a lot of the money that is going into the market right now is going into those stocks that have insane valuations, i.e. the FANG, which is Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Alphabet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're probably a bubble, too. Uh, formerly known as a Google. So there is a certain issue with uh, overvaluation that is going on right now. they money into it. So it's like non-existent money paying for well, non-existent valuations. Well, everything becomes a Ponzi scheme at that point because if you're valuing something at, and this is just my like my old school like Buffett approach thinking, mm-hmm. is that if you're valuing something at four or five, you have to look at like a valuation. You want to look at market cap and uh, earnings, a PE ratio. Okay. Now, the market cap is how much the company is currently worth, and the PE ratio is the price-earnings ratio. So how much are you paying for how, – how many dollars are you paying for each dollar of earnings? Right. So if you have a company that's like market cap currently at whatever – like if Tesla's market cap at what Chevrolet's at, but Chevrolet sells 10 times as many cars – and Chevrolet has one-tenth of the P.E. ratio, then you're essentially saying that, okay, you expect Tesla to grow to be X percent larger than Chevrolet. That's the bet. And you have to kind of make that logic work out because if you say that, okay, the total car market is, let's say, $1 billion. Okay, and just to make clear for the uh, chat, this this is just numbers in Theory. These are not real numbers. These are just numbers I'm working off of to create to an example. So let's say you have a 1 billion car industry. And this is divided equally between four companies. So you have $250 million from each company. And then you have a new entry into that. And they're valued that they're going to make seven. They have a valuation that says, okay, they're going to own... $750 million out of that $1 billion market. What are the probabilities that they're going to be capable of actually dominating that market? Why should they push all the other companies out? Like if you put the valuation at, okay, we're expecting them to eat up $50 million mm-hmm. from the four companies that currently have $250 million. So instead of four people sharing a billion, you're going to have five. Okay, that makes sense. If you're valuing a company at three times what the total car market is, that suddenly makes no fucking sense whatsoever. Assuming the people that are buying into it are thinking like you. I don't think they are. I like it as a psychological thing as opposed to like a numbers thing. Because it is, the economy is essentially the art, the study of decision-making. Basically, am I right? Yes, no, maybe? Oh, yeah, I'm kind of, I know what you're saying. Because I had that thing in an interview I had with a finance company earlier. And it was the same kind of difference. Because I like to value companies from a basis of fundamental assets and 
uh, total market share within their industry. Yeah, but, and long term, I'm pretty sure that that. Yeah, and long term that right? makes sense, but short term it doesn't, and that's why Benjamin Graham was known for saying, like, short term the stock market is a popularity contract. Like short term. Tesla can be market capped to be worth 90 times as much as all the other companies, car companies in the world combined. Just and they can have a PE ratio of 7,000 because, yeah, because um, Elon did a good podcast with Joe Rogan. But in the long term, Tesla is going to go bankrupt because they built the cost structure that doesn't actually reflect the underlying realities of the business. Mm-hmm. And I too, a lot of people have noticed they have more money than cents. Like, for example, if you only have $100 to your name, you're probably going to use that for something that's more directly beneficial to you. But if you have, you know, $10 billion more than you'd ever be able to spend in 10 lifetimes, the idea of you taking these risks based on feelings is more likely. So I have a feeling there's a lot more feelings-based valuations than there is, like, number crunch-based valuations because people have, like, more money than cents. Yeah, but that's exactly the problem right now. And that's what Older Brother is getting at, is that the market doesn't work off fundamentals in the short to medium term anymore because of all the QE shit. Right. So what do you do about that? You adapt. Because, well, the whole thing is like the the whole thing with the financial valuation, it's always to some extent been based on government frictions, right? Right. You have like the, my favorite whipping boy, the Mugliodani Miller hypothesis, that is the capital structure doesn't matter with no frictions. Well, you're never going to have no frictions. Yeah. And if you have the government constantly pumping in capital, the people getting the benefit... Well, laws are kind of secondary, but if you're pumping in like $10 billion of capital, that capital needs to go somewhere where you get a return. Mm -hmm. And at that point, like what used to be a reasonable PE equity, uh, like a reasonable PE ratio used to be like four, used to be X4. So four times earnings. Right. A reasonable PE equity for like tech or growth companies now is like 12, 14 times. Uh, your price equity. Right. And I expect that to grow with the growth of capital just on the basis that if everyone is chasing places to place capital to earn a decent interest, because interest rates across the world right now, if you have deposits in a bank, it's like 0.1%. Yeah. So anything. So everyone's chasing any kind of return. So you're going to expect to see those P ratios to go through the fucking roof. Which is oh, true. holy shit. It's, I didn't realize that, but if this is true, that the forward PE ratio is 25 for the SP500, holy fucking shit, man. You're expecting these companies to essentially do their earnings 25 times over. Yeah. Well, here's, here's my thought on it. Um, like, is that even like logically fucking possible? It's not, but if you want in the market, you have to play, right? And everybody's raising it up and making those expectations. It's like a constant chase. I'll put it this way, though. Uh, Employee shares. I'm sure everybody knows these. You work with a company. You're like, every dollar you put into the stocks for our company this year will pay you 50 cents or 30 cents or whatever amount. Now, would you have normally, let's say you have $100,000 and you would have put it in your company stock, but you're like, this company is shit. It doesn't do anything. The market pulls 8% a year. You guys pull maybe two. But if they're paying you 30 cents on the dollar just to invest, your stock would have to lose 22% to have you worse off than if you had just put that money in an index fund. And I think 
on some level, that's kind of what's happening here with all this quantitative easing, all this free money people are getting. Even if you lost money, you have to lose more money than the quantitative easing would have injected. Does this make sense so far? I know I'm not very technical with any of this stuff. But it's more... So it's not even whether the numbers make sense. It's just what are what's the alternative. And the alternative is not getting free money and then having a normal P.E. ratio. But it's just everybody's got free money, so they're doing, you know, tulip, tulip mania. And until all the free money stops, people are just going to keep doing it. And then when that happens, that's when the new normal is going to come crashing down and a bunch of stuff is just going to become vaporwave or vaporwave. Well, like I'm not, I'm not going to give people bad advice now, but if you can borrow a million dollars at 2% interest rates and you can make 3% interest rates a return on investment in that period of time, you should borrow that million dollars. And that's what a lot of these people are doing. They're borrowing and they're taking a fuck ton of money yeah. and they just need a home for it because if you're paying like every time you borrow money you have a cost of capital and you have a return on capital and your goal as an investor is to have a higher return on capital than you have a cost of capital right that's the basic thing and if you scale that really really fucking up you get and you say let's pe <laughs> no but let's say you buy a let's say you borrow a billion dollars right at two percent interest Number one, you have the initial benefit that if you owe the bank a thousand dollars, you have and you can't pay, you have a fucking problem. If you owe the bank a billion dollars and you can't pay, the bank is a fucking problem. But on the other end of it, you have like a stock market that's hopelessly inflated. You have a commodities market that's hopelessly inflated because of all this capital that needs a home to make some kind of return. And I think that's kind of like the issue with Bitcoin, too, is that you have a lot of spillover of capital because people are so desperate to find things that will actually offer them a decent return because the government is throwing fucking money at them. Yep. And it's great in the short term because everybody's doing it and it's working well because everybody's there. But that's the problem. How long is everybody's there going to be for? Well, I don't you know, know. Anal you know, analogy back to our like core of interest is just on the basis that like if you have a thousand girls throwing their pussy at you, like you can raw dog this right now. It feels great in the fucking moment. It's not so great when you get the goddamn child support bill. Yeah, but that's the question: is that when? Like, what timeline are we talking about? One year, five years, ten years, twenty years? You never know because they, they've kind of been. Because I think we've been due. Uh, a good recession since the Greenspan days when Alan Greenspan was head of the Federal Reserve. Yeah. But we kind of skated the dot-com uh, bust. We skated the 2008 busts. And then we and were returned. four years due. COVID was like, it's almost like COVID became our recession. And even then that was four years too late. Yeah, so they're kind of like pumping in a fuck ton here. But remember, so, that's the thing. 2008, people were saying, this is it, man. All this stuff's coming home to roost. And it kept chugging along for another decade. So no, and know China and Russia, not coming? No, but China and Russia actually had the best question of the night. Mm -hmm. And then, don't worry, I'm going to let you finish. But uh, China and <laughs> Russia just had the best question of all night here. Can they ever increase interest rates when we have so much debt? And no, they can't. Nope. And that's the problem. Now that, and yeah, you're at zero. What can you do? You can't move. You it just lost the interest rate mechanism to manage inflation and to manage monetary policy because when America 
owes as much as they do, and every fucking country owes that much. If they increase the interest rates, they're going to go bankrupt very quickly. So their only option now is to run the printing press at full volume. And that's essentially what created the problem in 2008 in the first place was that you had EU monetary policy. You had a mutual currency without a mutual uh, monetary policy. So you could essentially borrow money in Greece at Germany's interest rate. Same thing with Italy, same thing with Spain. Three countries that are about as financially responsible as a coke addict could borrow money from your uh, rigid Protestant cousins' interest rates. And you can see why that's a goddamn problem. Now, just to make this clear, I... Okay, go ahead. Sorry, my man. No, I was just going to say, I haven't been funny for like 15 minutes now. So (laughs) if you don't mind, do you want us to keep banging on about this bullshit? Or do you want us to go on to something where I can actually be funny and not rage? Yeah, Carl could be funny if he really tries hard. Come on, guys, work with him. I will say this, though. Let's say this, like, I'm assuming he's getting at eventually crows are going to, or the cows are going to come to roost, right? I argue, even if you make the proper decisions and all this stuff, once the shit hits the fan and things cascade, like, even if you're perfectly well financial, it doesn't matter if your bank goes under, out from under you. I'll say that to everyone who had most of their life saving in Lehman Brothers in 2008. Yeah, well, no, they didn't I... want to hear it back then because they were making too much. And now they don't want to hear it because you're just rubbing salt in the wound. So I'm like, oh, fuck it, let them burn. Do what you can to avoid these worst case scenarios but... you can hedge. My general view on it, you should always seem strike to distribute your money across multiple banks because having everything in one bank, like you want to look into like some countries I know have like customer protection laws where the government will guarantee a certain amount of money. So you want to maximize the what you can do with that. You want to make sure that, well, if shit really, really, really hits the fan, like a prepper doomsday bunker style. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's the least you're, you're going then. Yeah, at that point, you're going to need, like, silver, gold, and bullets, and penicillin. Those are going to be your main investments at that point. A harem of 15-year-old girls to pawn off. Like trading goats for a dowry. <laughs> right, that's that's some humor. That's underage hooker humor. But Not, ultimately, I think... Dead. <laughs> I think we're going to have, because ultimately, I think Ben Graham's most prescient statement was the one I quoted earlier, with the market in the short term being a popularity contest and the long term being a meat scale. Mm -hmm. Because at a certain point in time, you're going to come to the point where you actually have to pay the bills. And if you have to put 40 pounds of silver, 40 pounds of Angus beef, whatever you have to put on the table, you're going to have to put that on the table. And if your derivatives market or your stock market or whatever is valued at, let's say, 90 times the total value of resources and money, et cetera, in the world, you have a deficit. And at at some point, that's going to become payable. And that's going to be a cascade. Because that's what happened in 2008. You had a cascade. In 1920, during the recession, you had a cascade. Right. In the tulip market, even back in Holland, you had a cascade where suddenly, like, two dudes wanted their shit paid out. And And they couldn't couldn't get it paid out. And then everyone was running for the payout. And suddenly, you didn't have the solvency needed to pay that shit out. 
so you're going to have that happen at some point because ultimately, if you have two hookers to pimp out, you can pimp out a max of 48 hours a day. If you're pimping out 96 hours or 960 hours a day, those hookers are going to be worn out, man. You'd think, but these hoes, man, they got skills. Quantitative easing is hoes. I don't know. <laughs> I can't think of a way to link those together, so I'll just blunt it out. I'll Norm McDonald the joke. But that's my thought. Was, like, what do you want to hmm. do? And I just like don't leverage yourself to the point that you won't feel it. Guys who are buying homes mm. at like 80% of their income are probably going to feel it really badly. Guys who are over leveraged but have a ton of money, they're going to hurt, but they'll be fine. They're poor who didn't have any money. They're still going to have no money, but now they can't buy food. Just don't be part of the guys who are going to get caught in it. Don't make the same mistakes people make when they when you know in previous recessions. Like guys in the housing market, subprime loan people, they got fucked. Rich people got fucked, but they had enough money that they were okay with it, and they got bailouts from the government. So just don't it's kind of like the Bezos. Well, it's kind of like the Bezos divorce. If you have a billion dollars and you get divorced, and you still have um, five hundred million dollars, yeah, it hurts, but it's not that bad. Yeah, but if it's your last five hundred million dollars, that kind of sucks. <laughs> so it's just one of those things. Like you just don't want to be the guy that goes from having a let's say lower middle class lifestyle to being broke as fuck and being poor. Yep. I think the it's upper like middle you... class are the ones that are going to hurt the most. Cause they're the ones that are kind of like purchase status. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I think those are going to be hit hard because I think the upper middle class right now is an illusion based on credit. Mm-hmm. Oh, I a hundred percent agree. And I think the, Credit is kind of the problem there is that a lot of people are like my I'm kind of looking at that from like a perspective of like my grandparents barely had any debt ever. Right. My parents at their highest level had like 200 grand. I'm currently sitting at 75 grand because that's because I hate debt because debt makes you a slave. Oh yeah, those it's it's progressively gotten worse. worse. I guess worse. Yeah, worse is a fair way to explain it. I didn't want to Because say if you look at it like even student debt, like I got all my degrees without any major debt. Like Same. my peak, my peak student debt was like uh 5 grand here. 30 grand for me. I'm down to about 5 now. Mine was five, and then the military would pay me back after the end of the semester, so that's all I've ever carried. Yeah, but you have a degree in art history, so that's fair. That was the first degree. That one wasn't... That was parent paid for. The business and IT management one was the second. That's the one that the military paid for. But if you're sitting there at, like, let's say you're 200 grand in debt for a college degree that you're barely barely making a return on. Mm-hmm. And you can't then discharge... You add- then you add like 180 grand in a housing loan for a decent house. Then you add a car to that. Then you add credit cards. Then you're starting to get into a point where you'd potentially hurt if your major income source got hurt. The oil rigs had a huge example of that. A lot of guys, what they used to do in the oil rigs, like you were saying, parents generation, they knew there was boom and bust years. And so they were very frugal. But nowadays, guys get a job at the rigs at a high school earning like 150, 200,000 a year. 
buying $100,000 trucks and homes and the things. All of a sudden, oil drops to 30 bucks a barrel from 100 and now these guys are asking the government for the bailout, and the government hates the West Coast, so they never bailed them out. And all these guys essentially had their entire lives decimated because they thought $100 a barrel oil was happening forever. And to me, that's the lesson. If the guy had just lived as if you know that wasn't going to be forever, $30 a barrel lifestyle, they'd have been fine. I think it could still work in this. All this insanity here. You just live like when shit hits the fan, what lifestyle can you afford? Live that one. Like you said, even you do it where you don't live extravagantly. You live modestly, but it's basically stuff that you want, you get, but you don't get things you don't want or things to signal or things that are extravagant because you think you can afford it. How much do you need to retire, Ryan? We got a question in chat here. Could you retire on 2 million? Where? And when do you it's want to retire? Chat. No, I mean, where do you want to retire and when do you want to retire? That's the number makes no sense outside of that context. And then do you have like a old age pension plan that the government comes up with? Do you guys have that or what do they call it in the States? That old age pension security thing. You mean social security? Yeah. Okay. Social security. Yeah. If social security gives you a grand a month, do you factor that in? Do you assume it's not going to be there by the time you retire? Do you want to retire in your 40s? Do you want to retire at 65? When you retire, are you going to move to like a cheap place in the boonies that cost nothing? Or do you want to stay in like New York City? Like all these things factor in. But that's the thing. People have to know what they want, right? Now, this is not an economic argument. This is just me as like a logically working your way through it. I want to retire somewhere low cost of living. Like definitely where, like my home now is, I don't know what's worth now. Uh, my old lady says the stuff that's selling now is like six, seven hundred thousand, which I still can't believe it, but whatever. Definitely have it paid off by the time I retire. So if I can just move into a place that costs less than that, invest the rest, that's basically my retirement there, but I'm assuming that it won't be. Build up enough of a savings that I could have it, but I would rather not retire and be bored. You know those guys that retire and then die like a year later because they had nothing else to do? Yeah, like that was my thinking too because I've been having this argument with my girl for a bit because she has a very different view of money than I am. Yeah. That I have. She treats it as fun tokens? <laughs> or or is she not like mine? Oh yeah, somewhat like that, yeah. It's <laughs> a fairly close estimate. Gotcha. But my thing, my thing has just been that could I retire on two million? Yeah. Do I want to live in fucking Tennessee? No. No. It's like, and as long as I don't, like, I think retirement and the dream of retirement are for people who got themselves onto a track that they don't actually enjoy. Yeah. Like, even if, let's say, I had uh, fifteen million dollars in the bank right now, I wouldn't retire. I would be funding businesses. I would be doing shit. I would be looking for market opportunities. There. Yes, the kind of thing you could do when you're 80 and 90 years old still to be productive and have a purpose. So you're not just sitting there on a sofa watching football. Because I I enjoy that shit. It's the same thing as like I've, I've learned a lot of shit. Like I know how to make my own beer. I know how to distill my own whiskey. I know how to take apart a gun and build a gun. I know how to do woodworking. I know how to invest money. I know a lot of these things because I actually think they're fun to learn. 
Yeah. And if you know how I, to write, you're an author. Like if you gave me thirty million dollars right now, I would probably work harder because I'd be like, okay, you know, I have thirty million in seed capital. I need to invest this shit so I can make that into three hundred million. Once I reach three hundred million, I'd be like, oh fuck, I have three hundred million. I need to find something to invest this shit into that's actually worthwhile so I can make this into three billion. See, it's funny. I would trick lower ROI stuff like the underwater basket weaving or like, you know, all that stuff that like nobody would do because you can't make an income off it. But if I had enough money, then I'm like, well, then I can do that and make an income off it. Because all I need is an extra 10 bucks a month to make my retirement work. Well, I think the major thing is if like if I had like, let's say, 12 million dollars, like the hypothesis is in chat right now, would I retire from my day job? Yeah, probably. Yeah. But I wouldn't retire, period. I'd be finding things I wanted to do and trying to make those into businesses to try and make a decent ROI on those $12 million because, you know, inflation is going to bite you in the ass sooner or later. And it's better to have your money invested in something that scales with inflation as opposed to get raped by inflation. See, I like that's how you look at it. Even though we don't look at money identical, it's like, I like it because it's, you're not looking at it as how much money do I need to stop working? You look at it as, well, what do I want to do and how do I afford it later on? Same as me, like the military pension helped me kickstart a business in the first year or two. I'm not making as much money as you or as much money as I used to, but you know, I get to, I get to write a book. I've always wanted to. Sounds like fun. I get to well, play Tekken badly online for a living. Like, dude, that's retirement. If you think about it, you can go to the fucking gym at noon. If you want to, I have to be stuck in a fucking board meeting. Yeah. But I don't consider but myself at, retired, at, not by any means. At but the it's same time, though, the same thing. Like the reason why I picked the field I'm working in now, yeah, is because I wanted to run billion-dollar projects. Yeah, that's your because goal. I I thought that would be fun to do. Is it going to be fun to do forever? Probably not. Is it fun to do now? Fuck yeah. So that was always my thing. It's just like, it might be an ADHD thing. It might be kind of like a something else. But for me, it was like, I always found like, okay, I want to do this. So how do I get from where I am now to being able to do that? And once I get to that point, I do that for like a year or two. And then I get bored with that. And it's like, okay, what looks challenging to me now? And I just try and jump over to that. And that's that's fun. You're doing Taoism right there, that lack of permanence. Do something that you have passions over as long as you do, and then when you're done, put it aside and do something else. That's literally, she's not yours, it's just your turn as a life strategy. Yeah, um, that's I think it's a great. Good, that's a good take, but it's just like always been my thing, because my dad used to have that philosophy that annoyed the fucking shit out of me when I was a kid, and I felt like I had problems. Mm-hmm. But I've come to embrace as I get older, and that's like the ship always writes itself. Well, I mean, you're competent. Like you said, you got skills, and every everything you do, you gain new skills. So when the, the whole landscape or the environment changes, you change with it. I would argue that's actually a better approach than super specializing in one awesome money-making scheme because you've made that a risk. Like if you want to be Joe Blow hedge fund manager, you're now entirely reliant on on the idea of what a hedge fund manager does works. 
but all it takes is like a couple changes to finance laws and hedge funds don't work anymore. That uh, what's that new one? The high frequency trading. Yeah. Kind of took over for hedge funds. It automated it. It outsourced you out of a job or Canada, for example, we've changed our uh, fee structure for people who invest. So it turns out it absolutely killed high frequency trading in in Canada just because you can't do that thing where you incrementally bid a dollar, a dollar, a dollar and drive the price to the new normal and then maximize how much stock you put in there because it ends up being worth more than you can gain from it. But that's just it. One small regulatory change completely upends somebody's awesome plan. Oh, so at least with yours, of- like as long as it's fun, I'll do it and then I'll move to something else. You became you become more flexible or agile. Well, I, I kind of believe in that because I think that's a major issue with the conservatives, to use that term. <laughs> conservatives. They are, well, they are people that are inherently resistant to change. They right. want the status quo to remain because they are comfortable working within that. Yeah. And I just kind of believe like there's a, a, this is going to be the second Mass Effect quote or reference i'm like i'm gonna find the quote i didn't think you could out nerd yourself but then you come to the second mass effect quote (laughs) well yes there's a great quote in it but essentially it's a reflection of that species on evolution right because they kind of view that as the overarching dynamic of the universe is essentially become the best adapted and the most adaptable to your environments. Yep. Those are the ones that win. That's how we won. And I kind of believe that thing because I don't think like, I'll be honest, I don't think conservatism has any value whatsoever because at best they're like uh, a stuck brake on a NASCAR. So I just don't believe in that. But I think that we need to be more adaptable going forward because if you look at the changes to your job uh, from 1980 to 2000, and then you can look at it from 1880 to 1980, Mm -hmm. the increments of change is going to be extremely small. Which is true. So, So... Change is actually a force that it's, what's it called? The self-reinforcing. The more change we have, the faster change is, the more change we have and the faster change happens. Right. So my take on that is just that it's going to keep pushing forward at a higher and higher pace. And those who do not adapt, those who remain in the shed, are not going to be part of the future. Because it's one thing that they are not willing to adapt, but if they raise their children to not be willing to adapt, and their children raise their children to not adapt, that entire family is going to be in Appalachia running a copper still in 500 years while we're exploring space. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to have that's that kind long-term of, uh, a vision to it either. They, these things happen whether you want it or not, because the guys who train their kids like that assume that their kids abide by their their wishes. That I think that's a big reason why children rebel against their parents is specifically as like a defense mechanism against parents brainwashing to make like little versions of themselves. 
which is yeah, most yeah. likely why a lot of people that's why a lot of people have daddy issues right now dad tried to raise me to work on the mill like he did yeah well there's no mill so fuck you dad or is that a bit too um, west coast of a reference no no i kind of get what you're saying and it's just if you're not adaptable and i think adaptability is going to be kind of the core topic of this entire cast mm-hmm. is that if you are not well, if you're well uncommitted, like Christian says, is one thing, but it's more about not making a certain profession, a certain political ideology, a certain worldview your identity. Because if I identify, if I'm a guy who works at the mill, mm-hmm. then I'm a guy who works at the mill. If I'm a mill worker, then that's my identity. And those two are very, very different. Dude, I've watched because it happen. Watched if I'm happen. the guy who work, if I'm the guy who, if I'm a mill worker, then I can never retrain to do another job. If I'm a guy who happens to work at a mill, I can retrain. If I am a guy who likes blondes, then I can kind of retrain myself to bang brunettes. If I'm a blondes dude, I can't retrain myself to like brunettes when or redheads when blondes inevitably get etched out yeah and you're not being abstract about this either i saw it in my small town there was a lumber mill and a pulp mill and nafta came around when i was a kid and i remember watching it everybody lost their jobs everybody got pulled back cocaine decimated the communities everybody got divorced and probably half of the of the friends of my parents growing up had either drank themselves to death coked themselves to death been murdered or committed suicide like, I flat out watched what that mill or logging camp as an identity thing came from. Not Nobody survived it. Nobody. Because they were like that conservative mindset of this is the way it is and this is what you do. We don't know anything better. Take care of your family. But then, yeah, that's where that Rolo stuff came in, the hypergamy. Girls noticed their, get, their guys were dead and they're like, yeah, it's time to move on. I'd rather be alone than when this guy is drinking himself to death because the mill shut down. And I just don't I, get I why guys just, want to go back to that. I really don't. And I think, well, I don't think they want to go back in so much as I think a lot of guys want, like men want stability, right? We pick our girls expecting them never to change. They pick us expecting that they can change us. Right. And and I think that's an inborn thing in a guy's mindset that, we kind of want things to be static because when things are static, they're predictable. You're not going to have a cougar suddenly pop on the fucking woodwork and try to kill you. Kill you. Yeah, I mean, to a reasonable extent, yes, but you're right. Once they turn the tism up to 12 and they make I don't want anything to change ever, it becomes a little bit too bad, too much. Hey, dude, you've been around this place as long as I have. When do they not turn the tism up to 12? <laughs> When they stop watching those fucking idiots with listicles about five ways to be an alpha male. <laughs> and like my take on that is just I'm like if I had to give one like tip to every guy, it's like just be fucking adaptable. Right? Like you're gonna you're gonna run into situations where suddenly girls get into, you know, dudes who wear black jeans. Okay, wear black jeans. Suddenly, girls are going to be into this. They're going to be into that. There are certain things that are kind of permanent. But 
those are kind of the basic shit. Like Chris Rock had a good one for this too. Is like all these guys who want credit for shit they're supposed to do. Like I take care of my my kids. Yeah, yeah you're, you're supposed, supposed to, to, you dumb motherfucker. And you're not supposed. You're supposed to wash your dick. You're supposed to style your hair. You're supposed to wear clothes that fit you. You're supposed to stay in reasonable shape. And the reason why I said reasonable. Is that like the that whole te- six pack abs thing? That's a bonus to most girls. Yep, they don't see that muscle definition until you take your fucking shirt off. If you look strong in a shirt, they don't really care. By the time that shirt comes off, they're already committed, and you're gonna be going deep into that vajayjay. Uh, Right. So it's it's just a matter of dialing the tism back to a like a solid six and executing. Just enough tism to focus on a singular task, not so much tism that you ignore all the other tasks. <laughs> well, and you know, that's kind of why I uh ditched out on the manosphere in the first place mm-hmm. uh, for my first run was just on the basis that I was seeing guys like, okay, I'm going to drop out of my engineering degree to pursue pickup full-time. Jesus Christ. I'm going to uh, quit my job and go live in a collective with six other dudes to form a lair to just to pick up 24-7. And that's that hurts you in the long term because, you know, if I had to pick, like... Girls aren't like in my top five of priorities I want for my life. Dude, that's the that's the post from Archwinger. The set they're number seven. <laughs> number seven for him. I was gonna be like six. Oh well you're you're just a big softy, you simp. <laughs> but for me it was more like think about yourself as pre observing girls. Yeah. Like, what are the things, like, right now, like, I have my girl shit sorted. I have my money shit sorted. I have a slight bit of a drinking problem, but nothing well, it's too not a severe. yet. And a I have all, problem. like, I, I, I'm a good cook. I eat good food. I work out. I do all the things I'm supposed to do. And what do I want to do if I have free time? Well, I want to kill Ryan in Among Us. Run a raid. Run a raid with top end gear, which is probably what. Uh, well, funnily enough, I actually quit that game. No shit. Yeah. So if anyone wants to buy a rank fourteen warrior with top end gear, let me know how much you're willing to pay. <laughs> but that's the thing. Like you've earned the right to waste your time, and you want to waste it in the most pleasurable way possible. Why wouldn't? Yeah, you? and it's. And it's kind of like, that's kind of my goal is I want the most possible amount of time that I can waste in the most pleasurable way possible. That's the difference, though. You earn it as opposed to just wanting it by default. Well, you kind of have to earn it, though. It's like kind of my take on it. But how many neats are surviving right now doing fuck all? Yeah, Yeah, but they're not living good lives. They're living quiet lives lives of quiet desperation for lack of a better word yep. it's like i i've kind of because i kind of lived that neat life for about a year was it after college like your gap year thing or 
Yeah, yeah, it was a gap year thing. Ah, okay. And, you know, it was extremely pleasurable in the short term to smoke weed every day, just sit around gaming, eating whatever I wanted. But in the end, you grow fat, you grow lazy, you go unambitious, you lose your mental faculties. I found I got stir crazy. Like I left the military, I wanted to take a time off and I just like three months and I was beside myself. Well, like the way I am now, if I take more than a three week week vacation, I get stir crazy by week two. (laughs) Like once we get into like uh, about uh, two thirds into week two, I start planning projects I want to do. Hmm. And but the thing is, like, kind of the way I've kind of worked it is that most of my hobbies are marketable skills. Like the gaming thing, obviously not. I could go on Twitch, but do I want to deal with those cons? Not really. But it is a skill. You could still do it. Oh yeah, it's definitely a skill. I could do it. I just don't want to. But it's like. The whole thing with woodworking was something I started with because I thought it was interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with uh, distilling, same thing with brewing, same thing with cooking. They're just things I found interesting because of some aspect of the skill. For the most part, they're all technical skills. I just found them enjoyable to do. And that's, that's- why... I'm- I've been telling the guys, too, like, if you want to get into something, like, uh, archery is a great skill if you want to work on focus. See, that's funny, Uh, because in the military, I couldn't write, and that's why I wanted to write a book, to work on the ability to actually put a sentence together that isn't in an ACP 127 or 128 format. Oh, that's a good one. That last one is a pain in the ass. Oh, that's the Canadian standard, man. ACP 128. (laughs) I just focused on, like, at one point I wanted to improve my focus, so I took up um, archery. Mm-hmm. Because archery is really good with forcing you to hone in on focusing. Right. Uh, woodworking is really good if you want to improve your attention to detail. Uh, welding is really good if you want to look at your ability to I don't know. It's kind of getting back to me that all of these are kind of creative pursuits. Yeah. Well, that's dude. It's the same reason that I actually did like working on the ranch. At the end of the day, you have something to show for your effort as opposed to guys in corporate jobs where it's just like a constant churn of things and projects never get finished and they get dropped. And at the end of the day, somebody's like, what did you do today? And you can never point at something or say this. You just you'll always get that with woodworking. Even if your stuff's not done, you could point at that piece of wood there that it's smoother than shit right now because you've been planing it all day or the welding. Well, I put that piece of metal on that. Even if it's like a small thing, it's at least something to show for it. It's a feedback. And I think that's I think that that's kind of why I enjoy doing those things. Because it also because in corporate you have to fill out 18 forms and get a corporate buy-in. You have to talk to stakeholders. Here is just me basically taking a piece of wood or a piece of metal and I'm doing what I want to do with it. Yeah. And I think that's kind of, it's a satisfaction on itself. So I wouldn't say like for every guy who's in corporate or if every guy who's in like an intellectual job, 
just get a hobby that allows you to produce something that you're 100% in control of. But just pro tip, don't work with power tools or any tools while drinking. It's just not a good way. I have like a four-inch cut on my forearm right now that uh, indicates that. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, dude. Here, we should probably roll this one up. We've been going on like three hours now. Plus, it sounds oh, like, shit. I don't know if you've been drinking or not. Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> we're at that point. I can tell where it's like, we're two beers short of like screwing the podcast over. <laughs> <laughs> Just good enough where you're lucid, not good enough where you're incoherent. All right. Do you think we did a good job for Aaron? I think you should be glad. Oh, well, this he actually thing. sent me a great show, by the way. You guys are kicking ass. Nice. Oh, wait. He sent me one, too. Art history. Gah, hey. <laughs> <laughs> You should read this book, Worthless. Oh, dude. Honestly, I, like, financially, it wasn't the best decision, but whatever, I followed my dreams. I will say, it's, I put it up there with, like, a history degree in understanding things. Because, like, I look at art, like, visual philosophy now, and a lot of the stuff that you're able to pull up, talking about with, like, your World War II history knowledge and stuff like that, a lot of the times, following the art history kind of gives you a parallel track to all that knowledge. And so it's very nice to see. Like when I see idiots talking about uh, just taking down like Black Lives Matter and the Antifa stuff, to me that just looks like dataism after 1915 was over. Like everything still has like an element in art too. But I like that because it's visual. So it's more like history, but with memes. So I oh, wouldn't say enough. it's useless. Plus, it's always very pedantic when you're like, oh, you know, my favorite part of Norman Rockwell is this, or hey. I, I like Gauguin more than Van Gogh because, I mean, he was sleeping with underage chicks on an island, so he's definitely a better artist. Like, you know what I mean? I know. My favorite part of uh, Norman Rockwell was the uh, unrealistic picture he sold to Americans where they have the nice family dinner, but dad kicked the shit out of mom be two seconds before the painting was painted. Yeah, I know. I agree. I haven't eaten yet. I'll see you in a sec. Yeah, they've eaten. Yeah, that one there. But that's how you sell cigarettes, man. And people nowadays are still looking at it. They don't want the cigarettes, but they're like, whatever they're selling, I want some. I'm like, it's cigarettes and hating commies. That's all they were selling. <laughs> all right, man. I think we need to go off. Your girl seems to want attention. Yeah. Well, she just got back from shopping, and so we're going to have some dinner in that. But anyways, thanks, guys. I hope you uh, send Aaron some more love. Hopefully we did right by him. Thanks, Carl. I'll talk to you guys soon. Yeah, 